Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Mr. Adam Back, Mr. Jason Lowry, welcome to the What Is Money show. Thank you for having us on. Really glad Thanks, to have Robert. you guys. Glad to have you guys on. We've been talking about this for a while. Um, by way of brief introduction, I don't think either of you guys need one, but I'm going to give it anyways. Mr. Lowry, you are a U.S. National Defense Fellow at MIT, and your day job, as you say, is an astronautical engineer in the U.S. Space Force. Mr. Adam Back, you are the CEO at Blockstream and the inventor of Hashcash, which is the proof-of-work system used in Bitcoin. So I think today we were going to have a conversation that would start with Hashcash, actually, um, some of the specifics. I know, Jason, you mentioned you've been looking into the cost functions and whatnot. Um, so maybe we could start super general before we zoom in and get a bit more nuanced. Adam, what is Hashcash? And maybe you could give us just kind of the 50,000 foot story of how you came to invent it um, and then how that ultimately led you into Bitcoin. Yes. Yeah, so it is what has become known as a proof of work, though uh, different people have given it different names in papers over time. And there are a few related papers that uh, date back quite a while, like actually even into the 80s, so some sort of vaguely related things. So, and in terms of uh, how I came to invent it, so I was interested in privacy technology and uh, so I was running a remailer, which is a way to send anonymous email. And I guess more importantly, to also send anonymous comments to Usenet, which is itself a distributed kind of email-like discussion forum. And so there's a kind of denial of service amplification there. A denial of service amplification is basically that, you know, the attacker can do something and some part of the system itself will do many thousands of copies of what they did. So if you find a denial of service amplification, you can kind of cause the system to strain without doing that much work yourself. And 
that was a case with this discussion forum because somebody could post anonymously using the remailers and then uh, it, it would get relayed across yeah, probably a thousand um, distributed systems, a copy of the message. And so it, it became apparent that people were spamming through through the remailers to annoy the Usenet system administrators. And they were typically uh, university system administrators operated their local Usenet node. It's kind of flood network basically for messages with duplicate suppression. And some of, there's some commercial nodes as well. And, and the messages were not even like commercial spam. They were like full of random numbers. So we, we were guessing they were just trying to annoy, you know, trying to, trying to do like some kind of false flag, right? Where they were trying to annoy the remailer operators. So they, sorry, try to annoy the Usenet operators so that they would like take steps to like block or uh, somehow censor these anonymous discussion comments. But so anyway, as, as an operator, probably about 30 to 50 remailers at, at a time at that time. And so there was some discussion about like, oh, this seems to be happening. What is it? What could we do about it? And so I was thinking on this problem and I was also interested in applied cryptography, like encryption, signature schemes and hashing. And so I was aware of uh, this hash property called the birthday, sorry, the, yeah, it's like a birthday collision. Mm -hmm. So if, if you have a hash function, um, it turns out with about, you know, so let's say it takes a million operations to make this very small hash. Um, and with the effort of about square root of that, so about a thousand operations and a bit of memory, or some time memory trade-offs, you, you could make a collision on it, um, which, is, which is less than people would expect actually. And, and the, the birthday part of the name is, is because it's a kind of paradox, like a popular puzzle that if you, if you, you know, the question is how many people do you need to have in a room before there's a 50-50 chance that two of them share the same birthday? That's where the, the name of that comes from. And it turns out to be like a lot less than people assume because of this so-called birthday paradox, which is, the answer is about 23. So it's like three, square root of 365 approximately and this is corrective factor. So, um, but anyway, so the concept that I, I hit on was, well, wait a minute, if, if somebody did have a birthday collision on a, on a real hash function, you know, like SHA-256 or um, just SHA-1 at the time, which is 160-bit smaller hash, um, it, it would be ridiculously expensive to create it, so virtually impossible. But if somebody had one as a thought experiment, you could convince people that you'd done this enormous amount of work and they could verify it by themselves instantly like with very low computational effort and so i thought this kind of enormous asymmetry was an interesting tool because there's like an enormous work factor that goes into something and you get something very compact and verifiable that comes out of it and so i thought well maybe i can um you know tune this this problem like make a version that is instead of taking this you know, two to the 128 or two to the 80 operation uh, brute force attack, I could find a related problem that could take, you know, choose how many, how many operations. And, and like you, these, these are usually expressed in um, two to some power, but you know, like uh, 
two to 10, two to the 20. So two to 20 is like a million. So, you know, like if I could find one that could be done in a million operations, that could be instantly verified. That'd be interesting for, for my problem. And so I set about doing that and I found a way to do it, which was relatively simple. Um, and, you know, so I did this in isolation, just looking at the problem, aware of basic, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're interested in applied cryptography, you assemble a kind of mental tool chest of properties in cryptographic building blocks and how they behave and what you can expect for them. So that, that's how I came to it. And so I, you know, got busy and implemented it in a few days and posted it on the uh, Cypherpunks list, you know, the source code and the example. And that started some um, long running discussion about what this thing was. And it, it seemed to be more interesting than the building blocks, you know, so pretty immediately people were saying, oh, this is like digital gold. It's like, uh, digital scarcity is something interesting. And I think multiple people were sort of came to think, well, maybe we could build a decentralized electronic cash system with it. And there's a bit of context, which is, you know, the Cypherpunks list was, you know, a, a location of discussion about previous electronic cash systems, including David Traum's Digicash, which, you know, had run a demo server and people tried to bootstrap value in it, but they were centralized and they and then and, and those companies failed and the lesson people drew from that is well it needs to be decentralized to be survivable and so that's why you know the ability to sort of marry um digital scarcity and mining with a decentralized electronic cash system was interesting what what you wanted was a decentralization and i think another observation is if you could mine coins you could get away from the permission requirement. So the DigiCash electronic cash system was envisaged basically as what we would today call a stablecoin. So, you know, they needed a partnership for the bank to get off the ground. And with mining, you don't need that. Um, so uh, we maybe pause there because I'm just talking, talking. That's, that's where that. That's very helpful. Could you just unpack? The, the term used a collision does that just mean i guess you're in some kind of random number space and a collision would be when you hit a target you're looking for could you oh, just oh, oh, right yeah so a, a full collision you know so in the birthday example is you've got you know you keep adding people to the room uh, at a party or something until and you ask people their date of birth as they come in and eventually you're going to get a situation where at random you're going to have two people with the same date of birth so you're basically assuming that people have random dates of birth mm. and um you're trying to find two with the same birthday just by taking more and more people and adding them to a set until you till that happens to be the case and so if you want to you know if you look at a hash function you think about it like um a coin toss so it's a random event and you know, you're in, in a case of this 160 bit collision, SHA-1, you would take 160 coins and you throw them on the ground and you say, are they all heads? And of course the chances are, they certainly are not. <laughs> it's a very low probability event. And so then the, the collision version is, well, we're just gonna take, you know, two sets of 160 coins and throw them on the ground and see if they have the same pattern of heads and tails. And then, you know, if, if you want to, find 
any two throws that have the same set of coins. It's like, have you, through repeatedly throwing two sets of 160 coins for years and years and years, did you ever come across two that were the same? And even that is like basically impossible because of the size, you know, it's gonna take a ridiculous amount of time. But that's that's the challenge, right? So, you know, you're gonna write them down every time you throw 260 coins and a massive list and you just keep going until you find two with exactly the same set of coins. And that'll be a collision. Um, now in the birthday example with humans, the, the, the size of the set is sufficiently small that that's actually very easy. You know, you can, you can pull that off in a university class just about, right? Just ask mm -hmm. around, it's more than 30 people in the class, chances are that's the case. So, and that's, that's the full collision, which is just two hashes with the same output, basically. Um, gotcha. So in that birthday example, I think you said it's around 23 people before you get a collision, whereas intuition right. would tell you it should be more like, I don't know, 180s, like half the year. Right, right. Like yeah. So yeah. what is that? What's causing that, that counterintuitive result? Um, well, I mean, I guess people's intuition is that, you know, the number of permutations or pairs of people are mounting very quickly, right? So uh. that, that kind of combinatorial explosion is counteracting the enormous number and you end up around the square root if you, if you keep it going. Um, and, and the other problem with doing this in practice for computational challenges is computers are, you know, computers are very fast and memory is relatively expensive. So actually you're gonna run out of memory to store your results, right? Oh, right. Um, and there, there are uh, memory-less versions of this. It's something called Floyd's cycle finding thing, which is gonna kind of fascinating little algorithm, but it, but it means that you can search for birthday collisions without having to store hardly anything. And it just takes, you know, a bit more work, like let's say 50% more work, but you don't have to store anything. You just store like the last thing you've seen and you go, so it's, it's in the algorithm. Um, and if you were going to do it in practice, you know, that's what you would do. And so, and actually, you know, when I came to it, I was actually thinking, you know, do I, do I want this memory trade-off or is it actually inconvenient? And so I was like, actually, I don't want that. So I, I, uh, got rid of it. So I, you know, the, the, the freedom to find any two people with the same birthday means that that's the efficient thing to do, like to just add more and more combinatorial um, samples until you find the collision. And so to prevent it, I, um, I, I modified it. So you would choose a random number and then you'd hash that and it, it would produce a string of zeros and ones. And then your challenge was to hash the same random number in a counter and make it match the original. And to reduce the search space, I just said, well, it has to match in the first, you know, 20 binary digits, or, you know, you could change the difficulty. Uh, and Bitcoin is up in the like mid seventies to 80, <laughs> which is pretty big, right? I mean, it's wow. kind of crazy. So that was the difficulty adjustment essentially. Just Yeah, I mean, I had the concept of difficulty adjustment, but it's kind of manual. So yeah. I was thinking, you know, there's, there's a usability question here because Hashcash, as a postage stamp in effect is not respendable. And you want for sort of usability, you ideally want your computer to create it while you're composing the email 
or to create it you know afterwards so you probably don't want it to take more than a few minutes um usability and there's something else specific about hashcash which is it's a postage stamp and you need to prevent postage stamps being reused right so if if i send you know if i send you one then I shouldn't be able to cut and paste it, send it to Jason, and you both right. consider it valid because then I could go back to spamming, which is the root, root cause problem, and you know create one piece of work and send it to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I did to prevent that is, is I said that the recipient should check whether the email is part of the stamp. And so you know, as well as hashing this random number, I asked them to you know hash the recipient's email. So it's more like a check in a way. This work mm -hmm. has been done. Your benefits. So when you receive it and you see it's got your email in it, you're convinced that's completely useless to anyone else. And then I also put a date in it so that they could be expired. So you know your your database of previously seen stamps wasn't growing indefinitely. And there's also a trick there, which is you know I've got this kind of this sort of hash and random number to prevent the um, birthday problem. Um, I mean the birthday approach and. So a couple of people later suggested changing it. So, so it, it affects in, in authentication schemes, you, you have like a challenge and a response. It's common phraseology, right? Um, I'm going to give you a challenge. You have to give a password to get in. I'll give you a challenge, you'll solve this. And maybe solving it requires a private key in many systems. And so here the challenge is I make up a random number. And I do it myself, right? I, I choose my own challenge. And that's, that's safe, it turns out. Um, so I make up this challenge, random number, hash it, and then I try to find a solution. And there's no advantage, you know, I could pick a different random number and I have to start again. So I don't have an incentive to do that. And no, no random number is better than any other random number because it goes through the hash function, which is itself behaves like a random number generator. But nevertheless, a couple of people observed. So Hal Finney, a name that people recognize, sent me an email a few years later saying, hey, why don't you um, use all zeros as the challenge. It, it should be, you know, that should be good too. And it's simpler. Now you only need one hash invocation to verify it instead of two. And somebody else simultaneously, you know, within a few days sent me the same suggestion. This guy called Thomas Boschelou. So uh, they came to invent the same thing at about the same time, but evidently they did. And so I, I thought actually that this approach might be slightly more robust because, you know, it's not, completely implausible that there might be a special case. There's a concept in cryptography of sort of weak keys where somebody might, you know, grind out an enormous amount of space and find that if you start here, you have a slight advantage and you don't want that. So, so like generally freedom to choose your parameters gives the attacker more, you know, rope to play with. And so you don't want to give them any choices. So if you give them all zeros, like, well, you've got one choice, you've got to collide with zero. If that's inconvenient, too bad, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so that, I figured that was like actually potentially a little bit more secure. So I updated the software in the next major release and uh, changed it to that. And that's, that's what Bitcoin uses. And I, I guess most people don't know about the, um, you know, the, the earlier version because the new version is even simpler to think about, right? Because you're like, well, my challenge is, get leading zeros on this game. So I'm gonna throw these coins on the ground and I'm gonna see, you know, hopefully they land in a row and I can see that, you know, I need uh, 20 coins to be tails or something. Um, so it's, it's more intuitive and easier to think about in terms of a game of chance, right? Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. So it's essentially this anti-spam tool was kind of the origin, but spam itself is such a, a pervasive problem in the digital world that it, it's now been used as like an anti-counterfeiting tool, I guess, in, in Bitcoin, right? We have money that cannot be counterfeit, which was, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that was the aim of the cypherpunks for many years, just to create a money that Pure digital money yeah. with no counterparty. It could not be double spent. Could not be arbitrarily inflated or counterfeited. Were you going to uh, answer that, Jason? Yeah, I had a quick question. So yep. you mentioned that you you like this hash protocol uh, because it was expensive, um, because it could be tuned. So how expensive it is can be throttled up and down. Um, when you say expensive, are you are you thinking just strictly computation, computationally expensive, or at the time did y'all envision what it would become, which is these massive ASICs uh, sinking a lot of power into into solving this cost function? Um, so I meant. Uh, computationally expensive and, and I only published like the one version of it but I went through multiple variants on the way to that and so I mentioned one of them which is you know the memory like how much memory should it require and you you could fairly I mean it turns out to be a little bit hard to make uh, memory hard functions people later tried to do that and most of them turned out to be insecure so I was lucky I didn't try that approach or I might have had the same problem um, but you know so there, there are different things you could throw into there, you could say, well, it should require a certain amount of memory and computation. Or another thing I considered is to throw in like circuit complexity, like IEEE floating point requirement, something like that. And I resolved that actually it would be better if it was as simple as possible and, and actually standard as well. Like, so you could verify it with common, you know, libraries and command line tools even, right? Just, just for convenience, but particularly it should be simple because you want there to be no advantage for the attacker versus the defender. And so if it's simple, then it's easy to optimize, where if it's inordinately complicated, you know, somebody could throw a lot of smart people at it over a period of time and get an advantage. So that was sort of like simple in a way, like minimize the circuit size. And, and things like SHA-1 and SHA-256 are actually optimized for um, hardware simplicity in a way, right? They're supposed to be low gate count ways to hash, so they're significantly optimized in terms of circuit complexity. And I was thinking about um, like ASICs or, you know, because any, anybody interested in computer science will know that ultimately hardware wins. And if something gets a lot of use, it will get optimized into hardware. I mean, you know, into microcode and, you know, FPGAs and hardware. And that was already the case, you know, at that time, um, there were, for example, coprocessors, so optional extra chips that were doing floating point computations. So it's kind of, you know, today we have separate discrete graphics cards and integrated graphics cards and the separate ones are more powerful. And so it's the same thing, right? They had integer only Intel CPUs and then optional uh, floating point uh, chip. And, and it occurred to me that, you know, if this, if this, anti-denial service mechanism became widely used for internet protocols and you know also you could do things adaptively with it you know so if a website was getting overloaded you could 
you know, increase the proof of work, the more people were hammering it and sort of, you know, give a graceful degradation. So there are lots of things you could use it for. And so it, it seemed to me that, you know, that would terminate in coprocessors to do this or ultimately die areas dedicated to it. And so, you know, one of the considerations therefore was like, well, maybe it's not a good idea to, you know, throw an IEEE floating point into it because that will make a complicated circuit and you want it to be simple. And one other question. So you mentioned in your paper, the importance of creating a cost function that is what you call trapdoor free. So I, I read that as uh, not, um, you can't bake in some kind of exploit that, can, that people can take advantage of. And so right. is the fact that it requires random, it, is the fact that it requires random number guessing and just, just that's it, this brute force method of solving it, is that what makes it trapdoor free? Um, well, so I think, um, you know, the, the, the idea of trapdoor functions is, is old, you know, older, like the RSA, like the public key cryptography, basically digital signatures and public key encryption. And those schemes have a private key. So, so I, I guess what I'm saying is most protocols involve two parties, like a challenger and a responder. And so if that's the case, typically the challenger can have an inherent advantage, which is, you know, maybe only they can verify it or they can create puzzles for free because of some way, something about the way it's set up. And so, you know, you could certainly construct variants of Hashcash that had that property. And, and I, I looked at that and thought well, that's probably undesirable because you want to be, I mean, if you're trying to prevent spam, the question is, do you want to like have a cheat where somebody can you know, have a huge advantage and they can actually spam. And then you're like, well, they're the authority and they wouldn't do that. And then you get into this whole kind of realm where, you know, money comes into the play and you get spam anyway, just from a central party or group of parties. So you see this in, you know, popular um, browser pop-up blockers um, and, and, and things that cut out advertisements like Adblock Plus, right? So it tries to snip out advertisements from different web pages. And it turns out they make most of their money by selling bypass rights so that people can send the spam any, or the advertisements anyway, right? And so you can see that that would tend to happen. If somebody reserved for themselves or a certified group of people the ability to create bulk email, that you know, you'd still get spam. It'd just be different people would make money from it or something, right? It'd be like, yeah, anyway. So, so I thought, well, it's better if it's, um, you know, if it's neutral and there's nobody with an advantage and so there's no private key and, and the hash function has, has no private key anyway so there is naturally not the case but you've got to watch out because you can sort of accidentally create a trapdoor function like so pre-computation would be a mild version of that um, where you know if somebody can spend some you know thousands or millions of compute hours maybe they can pre-compute something and then they can create stamps more cheaply and that'd be a problem because you know a dedicated commercial spammer might get the resources to do that and then your protocol's broken um so you don't want that to be the case and coincidentally i didn't notice this till later but on the 
Ashkirsch site papers, I added some more references over time as they came to light. And the, yeah, so I think this is like 1978, Ralph Merkel's secure communications over insecure channels. And so it's, it's not like a full-blown public key cryptography system, but it's a neat observation that you could sort of create a, a square advantage, you know? So if you're, if you're the person communicating, you could take a thousand operations and the attacker would take the square of that, like a million. So it probably wouldn't be secure in, a, in, a, in the, like the asymmetry is not that big, but it introduced this asymmetry concept and it was like, the original kind of simplified proof of concept for public key cryptography, or at least the public version of it. Um, they, they're rumored or claimed to be some, um, uh, I guess, GCHQ or, or something like that. So they later said that they'd already implemented or already invented the same thing in, in a classified setting. So in any case, this, this uh, Ralph Merkel paper if you think about it, is, is a kind of interactive work-related thing, right? So, so the verifier doesn't come away with a, a proof they can show to third parties, but they have to do some work to succeed in communicating with the uh, party. And, and a person who was gonna you know, attack that and try to decrypt it without being one of the parties would have to do a lot more work. So this, this kind of asymmetry is, is there in a public key cryptography. And coincidentally, the first bit of sort of tech that inspired public key cryptography was actually using uh, symmetric key techniques, curiously. So, you know, there is a kind of overlap between symmetric and public key, it's just the public key has, you know, a much um, <clears throat> bigger effect, I guess, in the asymmetry. And one quick, easy one and it's probably dumb but i have to ask why work when you say do work is are you referring just to the computational work that a computer has to do did did this term exist before you called it proof of work well actually i think the uh, the proof of work term was from somebody else so i noticed afterwards that different people um call it different things so uh there was a earlier paper, which I wasn't aware of by Cynthia Dwork and Noni Neor, which calls it a pricing function. Um, and the actual proof of work was coined by somebody else later after Hashcash. Um, I was just gonna say, Adam, if you're pulling any resources there, you can drop those in the chat and we'll get them in the show notes too. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm just going off uh, hashcash.org slash papers and there's like a chronological list of papers. Um, so I called it a cost function, in fact. So the proof of work, which is which is a more descriptive way to describe it, proof of work. But so, you know, uh, I, I was calling it a cost function and it's, I'm not sure who it was, maybe, um, it might have been Jules and Brainard that called it work. What were they calling it? Uh, it, it was somebody, somebody later, basically. So, but I think proof of work is a, is a better term. So that, that ended up sticking and that's what people call them. I think it's just noteworthy to point out that the, 
the point here is to impose a cost on right. some type of action in cyberspace in this case, because you're using it for email. So whether you call it a pricing function or a cost function or proof of work, either whatever you name it, the point is to impose a cost on the person trying to do an action. Now, exactly. the question is, what is that cost? And it, it's some combination of computing uh, resources, whether or not you choose to add memory or not, or et cetera, et cetera. But the base layer cost is energy, is energy transferred per unit time, is power. I say all this because when I read this stuff, I think proof of power. I'm imposing mm -hmm. a you have to prove that you have the power to execute this action. I'm imposing a physical cost. And it's really noteworthy that your solution requires brute force to solve it. Right. Because, because then you could abstract your algorithm as a proof of brute force physical power. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess the brute force comes in because... <clears throat> um, you want there to be no shortcuts and so you know the and and, and it's got to be non-interactive so the non-interactivity came about because email is store and forward and so you can't like you know contact the the recipient's mail client and say give me a challenge and i'll, I'll send you an email because there's no protocol for doing it and um in fact, there were some other uses of it that even more wanted to rely on that. So one was, um, so th these are just things that people found to use it for subsequently. And one of them was um, a kind of way to combat click fraud. So, you know, people would get paid uh, for successfully bringing a click to your website or something, right? And so then they, they developed the click fraud, which is somebody would try to, you know, fake a click. So they would, they would, you know, make a bot to click on your web page, And then the people doing the advertising, like double click and people like that were concerned with how to prevent this click fraud. Cause you know, that would, that would annoy, it would be fake. And so it would become apparent that, you know, no real marketing value was bought and then people would stop buying their services. And so they wanted to, you know, make that complicated. And so there, some, some people tried to combat it by um, basically having the browser do some work, you know, solve a puzzle um, so that it would be more expensive to automate a click fraud and, and also require more programming, I think was part of the point. You know, some of this click fraud was not that technically sophisticated. So, yeah, I mean, I think the cost is a, is a point. And, you know, part of the thought process with spam was, you know, what's, I had to sort of go back to the drawing board because it was intentionally anonymous and decentralized because, you know, uh, Usenet servers are all over the place, right? And as well as, you know, the email case, the Usenet case was broadcast. So it had to be verifiable by anybody. Um, and um, you couldn't, um, so I lost my train of thought there. So while you're thinking, so, yeah. so if I can just 
kind of translate this down, people understood there was a way to impose some type of cost function to a way to challenge whether it be issued by the server or or whatnot. The the problem is, as you mentioned before, well, who like what makes that server the the person that gets to choose to make that challenge function. So bottom line is the, the challenge function protocol itself is vulnerable to systemic abuse or exploitation or um, able to give someone who controls it, who wrote it, who might've put a trapdoor in on purpose or not on purpose, enormous um, kind of control authority over, over this world because you're creating a bouncer protocol in which you control the bouncers. And so how do you make that um, purely fair for, for anyone to use. You said there was no protocol for doing that. And so your aim was to try to kind of make one, but also make it non-interactive so that the client gets to choose the manner in which they challenge. So it, um, is it, do I have this, do I have this right? Is this kind of the right um, yeah, way of thinking I mean, about it? So I think, you know, I think the non-interactivity was because of the setting. Um, so, <clears throat> because the verifier was, you know, thousands and thousands of Usenet servers, potentially, and you, you wouldn't even know the set of them, right? So it just had to be a self-embodied demonstration that the sender expended some work, like electrical power cost, um, where, you know, the, some of the similar, so, so I mean, the, the other thing is like, even though I was, um, I did a PhD in distributed systems. This was kind of a side project, right? So I didn't publish about it in a formal way, like in a peer-reviewed journal or something. I just put it on my website. And there's a bit of a phenomena with applied cryptography that there's a body of knowledge of people who build systems, so a practical knowledge about what's safe in practice. And then there's an academic uh, track where people are publishing you know, math-related papers. And in the academic track, the things that get published tend to be less practical use because you get more kind of publishing points for being the first to discover something or prove something's possible. And in doing that, you're going to bend all kinds of rules, right? You're going to like do something experimental. It's probably not secure in practice, but hey, you were the first to do it, right? So now there's a bit of an effect where the people that do applied things, you know, they read some of the academic stuff and all of it. And the people that do the academic stuff don't read anything applied. So, you know, they won't know a bunch of common rules of thumb and what makes something practical and you know what what people will actually use so they won't know that and so you know the uh, one example as well i hadn't read dwarken noel's paper i didn't like go read you know decades of uh academic um, crypto papers i read a bunch of them but mostly out of practical implication to see if there was something applied that could be used for a problem and so there was also you know as well as dwarken noel there's another paper that came out after Hashcash called uh, Client Puzzles um, by Jules and Brainard. And that is quite similar, but they weren't aware of Hashcash, right? Even though it'd been around for a few years because of this effect. And um, their approach was much more client server, right? So they were thinking about the interactive setting between a web browser and a, and a web server. And there's literally a challenge. So, you know, if the web server is loaded, it starts handing out work of increasing difficulty to the client. And so, but they coincidentally use hash functions, but they don't 
you know, you don't come away with a transferable proof that would allow somebody else to verify that because the way they construct them <clears throat> is, is the server picks a random number and hashes it and sends it to the client and says, figure out what the number was that I, you know, it's kind of like pick a number behind your back. What number did I think of, right? But with a hash function. So theirs was actually, you know, very related, but uh, not, not transferable. So it's only really usable between a client and a server. Um, so that was kind of curious. So I would make the argument that it is not actually a coincidence that they also used a hash function because I, one of my hypothesis, hypotheses is that the only way you can make a fully non-interactive, publicly audible, trapdoor-free, um, cost unbounded probabilistic cost function is through hashing. Not for the for the reason that you 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 just mentioned. You said work or you said work, and then you said electrical power cost. So it's the power itself. It's that brute force physical power, electrical power in this case, that is needed to solve this cost function, which makes it all of the all of these things. And, and, and it seems like any other type of implementation ends up not being good enough. It has some type of trap doors. It has some type of issues. But yeah, uh, yeah. right. I mean, it's, it's interesting. So, I mean, some of this is sort of hindsight looking at the different papers and solutions. And, you know, uh, somebody pointed out, I think Steve Shear pointed out the Dworkin Nail paper, I don't know, maybe three or four months after I posted Hashcash and I went read it. And they have three um, candidate proofs of work. And the, the actual application is, is also email. Like that's their example application. So I was curious, right? So, but their proof of work, two of them are kind of security degraded signature schemes. So they'll take a signature scheme and they'll say, well, we'll just shrink the key size until it becomes expensive, but possible to forge a signature. And then your challenge is to, you know, the server will, well, actually it's not server-based, but you'll choose your own challenge. And then you've got to forge a signature using that challenge. And so if you think about that, um, <clears throat> it's, you know, it's, it's not, yeah. I mean, I think these things are not as compact and they're brittle because um, those signature schemes are typically based on public key cryptography, which has got more um, kind of mathematical properties. So the hash functions and symmetric encryption have uh, better degradation properties. You know, they, they generally last, eventually they get weakened a little bit. Whereas the public key stuff historically has gone through some pretty dramatic, you know, algorithmic failures where people thought something was secure and it turns out to be completely insecure. So it went from like secure to broken where the hash functions tend to go from secure to, you know, a tiny bit less secure and then people phase them out. So, um, and th those were not, um, I think, probabilistic. So the, uh, the the guy with the fastest computer would won, would have won all of them. So for the Bitcoin use case, uh, electronic cash use case, you need multiple people to compete in a global puzzle. And for that to work, you need 
um, sort of fairness. So, so a guy with, you know, 100 ASICs or computers and a guy with one, they should have exactly, you know, 100 times advantage for having 100 times compute. Whereas what would happen with his, with these other algorithms is the guy with the, you know, the single fastest computer is going to take it all. And that's going to be a really bad property for the gold mining analogy, right? It's like, well, one guy sitting, you know, one guy has the technology to mine gold and nobody else does. So he owns all the gold. Won't make gold very attractive to anybody else. So, um, and then the, there's one third algorithm in this paper, in the Dworkin Neural paper, <clears throat> which coincidentally has some randomness, uh, which is to find um, square roots of a big prime number in a, in a modular prime number, uh, modular prime number. And that one, there's coincidentally an algorithm uh, called Tonelli Shanks, which is random, but it's not clear to me that, you know, under the kind of um, level of attack or financial incentive that Bitcoin, for example, has been under, whether that would remain the case. And in particular, you don't, you don't necessarily have to have, you know, a faster algorithm. You could have, you could have a slightly slower algorithm where the, you know, the first person to win takes all the coins and then that person could just, you know, build a fast computer, makes, makes some money from mining, build a faster computer and just pull ahead of everybody else, right? So it's actually quite challenging to have something that is fair. And ultimately that comes down to randomness, brute force, uh, Poisson process. And so if you look at those, proof, those proofs of work, coincidentally, Hashcash is just a far simpler, more elegant, compact, more secure, like it's easy to reason about its security than these other schemes. So even though, you know, it came later and I wasn't aware of it, I happened to have developed a simpler, more efficient scheme. And, and of course the client puzzles, which a few years later is also using hash functions. And so I guess hash, hash functions are <clears throat> um, like convenient building blocks. There's no trapdoor because there's no private key. They're designed to behave like random numbers effectively. You know, you put the sort of deterministic random number generators in a way. And so they're, they're convenient building blocks and they're efficient to, to run because people use them in authentication protocols and they care about the efficiency. So if I could echo some of this back um, to try and put this in simplistic terms, proof of work inside of Hashcash was basically introduced to introduce a cost to counterfeiting in digital space or spam. And it achieved that I guess achieve the unboundedness of this cost function by rooting it in the thermodynamics of work where you're actually engaged in this. Um, I mean, it's almost like a direct interface with entropy, right? Where you're actually um, hashing through the randomness, so to speak, to prove that you've um, done a certain amount oh. of work. Yeah. And I mean, actually, the, the end result is fascinating, right? I mean, when, when Satoshi put it together and managed to make Bitcoin work because you've got something in the virtual domain that has, you know, a, a very robust and unavoidable connection to the physical domain. Right. Because now you have, to, there's no shortcut. You have to do the work. It can, you know, have this really strong connection to unavoidable physical or electrical work and expenditure um, from a protocol that doesn't, 
directly know anything about the physical world, right? I mean, Bitcoin doesn't have any sensors looking at the physical world. It's not right. aware. It's it's very. I mean, it's it's clever and it's intricate, but it's in a lot of in like AI terms, it's very dumb, right? It does something very specific repeatedly, and yet it has this really strong connection to physical energy expenditure. It's like very interesting side effect. Yeah, so we've sort of mirrored, um, I guess, the the consequences or the physicality of the physical world in the digital domain. Or you could also say you've, you've ported these physical properties into the digital domain through proof of work. When did this dawn on you how impactful and important this innovation would be? Was it not until the invention of Bitcoin or did you know you were onto something really big earlier on? Well, it seemed to, I mean, there are certain things that once they have been pointed out, seem to readily occur to lots of people. And it seemed to be a bit like that in a sense that, you know, I posted it, Hashcash on the Cypherpunks list. And, you know, this is an audience that was very interested in electronic cash, right? That if, if you'd ask them which single privacy tech problem they would think the most valuable to solve, a deployed electronic cash would be it. That was their holy grail protocol. And it was very difficult. And all the systems that have been tried so far were centralized and had failed. And so, you know, they had that in the back of their minds. So they were maybe more prone to spot this than, you know, general population on the internet. But nevertheless, it seems to occur to multiple people that something about these postage stamp and the proofs was like digital gold or digital scarcity and to draw the connection that, well, you know, maybe you can, you can use this to solve this longstanding electronic cash problem that nobody managed to solve. And they've recognized from a few years before that central part of DigiCash's failure was that it was a central, you know, single central database, basically. Um, and people had written about, you know, it needs to be broadcast, it needs to be decentralized. But um, <clears throat> the proof of work seemed to be a new key part of that and to occur to lots of people. So, you know, I think probably within the space of a week, you know, half a dozen people had recognized this independently and were talking about it. Um, but then it was difficult to, you know, to make that work in a decentralized fashion, I think. And what was that missing ingredient or combination that Bitcoin got right that Hashcash didn't have in place? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I mean, more than Hashcash, just um, decentralized electronic cash, um, you know, to build that using Hashcash, the missing piece, I think, was, um, you know, so, so let, let's put it this way, by about a year later, there were two candidate designs by Nick Sabo and Weidai called B money and Bitgold, uh, the opposite order. And um, those protocols, you know, they were both using Hashcash and, but they weren't really implementable because they had, I think the problem was they had no way to adjust the difficulty to say how much work it should take to create a coin. And so, you know, like Weidai had groups of servers like supernodes and humans that would I don't know, like take a value judgment. And so those guys look like a monetary policy committee, not good, right? Um, and they're making a human judgment on something like what, what would be a good number 
right? And they could change their mind. And they could say, well, we're just gonna choose, you know, my idea was, well, it's just, you know, just as a, a straw man, like, what are we trying to do here? It's like, usually a part of the problem is like defining the problem. And I was like, well, this is like a stable coin concept actually, right? It's like, well, you could just, every six months, you could buy a thousand dollars worth of, you know, the most efficient computer piece of hardware and benchmark how many coins it can mine. And now that's your basis for your difficulty. But, but again, like the compute, you know, the, the protocol can't measure that um, or not easily, right? And so that was a sticking point. So I think in a way the, the problem statement was the mistake, you know, that, that we, we, or I was at least thinking about it in terms of how much um, of, of, of achieving like a dollar stable price, right? Um, of conversion from electrical energy into coins. Um, where what, what Bitcoin does is it says, well, you know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna solve that because that's unsolvable, <laughs> right? And it says, well, you know, the, the protocol will um, uh, control the rate of supply and the market will decide what it's worth, what the mm. price is. So the price is moving all around the place and the economics makes it track fairly well. You know, there's, there's a commodity economics thing going on where if the price is $30,000 a coin, people will be willing to expand up to that to achieve a new coin. And if it goes above that, you know, if the price falls, they'll start to switch off the least efficient equipment. And so the free market can actually solve that very well if you let go of the concept of the stable coin and just say, let, let's let the market decide that. And so, you know, in hindsight, a lot of these things look, you know, simple or elegant. And like, you, you would say, well, why, why did nobody figure that out before? Well, I don't know, like nobody figured it out. And Hindsight's like 2020, right? <laughs> like a train, right? And I think the other thing is people look at um, a design for something and if it's understandable and simple, they think the, if the intuition that the process of discovering that thing must also be simple, but that's really not the case. Like finding elegant, simple things is harder than finding ugly, only just works proof of concept things. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. The the idea of exploring a design space, there's usually one high point that you're trying to get to and nearly infinite um, suboptimal points, let's say. What yeah. um, is that? So the unsolvability that you just described there over this, this dollar stable coin is that essentially what luna and ust just went through they just relearned that lesson that <laughs> you can't do that algorithmically um well i mean i guess they tried but uh so maybe that was too strong of a statement but you know they had benefit of uh bitcoin right or you yeah. know some some concepts so but i mean i think the actual design was flawed in a few ways uh, it, it just you, you just end up assuming that market markets have properties that you can't rely on mm. basically that prices are continuous and that there will always be a buyer and, and in real life you know as as we've seen you know people have seen through multiple financial crashes you, 
there can be basically no list listable price. Like the market just breaks down and nobody's buying anything. So what is the price? Well, it's just like kind of undefined. Nobody will buy at any price or no sensible price. Um, and, and of course, it's also dependent on human confidence. And in particular, uh, that stablecoin attempt has, you know, has some collateral and then some stable coins. And once the collateral value fell below the stable coin value, it would be apparent to everybody at that point that, well, wait a minute, you know, the first person out, I mean, the last person out is going to lose money. And then you don't want to be the last person out. So everybody just panic sells, right? right. Like concept of value or it recovering is gone because you can see that it's already doomed. And at that point, it just, you know. So would you say then the key to the decentralization of Bitcoin was substituting in this difficulty adjustment that targeted 10 minute block times rather than a, a dollar value. Yeah, I mean, well, well to fix the supply curve and, and, you know, I guess, I guess, um, you know, some things about Bitcoin are parameters that, you know, you could look at and say, well, what if the supply curve was different? You know, what if it doubled every five years instead of every four years or what if there were you know 42 million coins instead of 21 and like things like that you've got to assume that it would have either way as long as there were you know sensible not like hyperinflationary stuff actually that was that was one of the kind of mental sticking points with um using hash cash as a as a basis of electronic cash was that people's intuition was that it was going to hyperinflate because you had a protocol to print money and computers get faster, like rapidly, Moore's law, right? And so, you know, their assumption was uh, this, this is interesting, but we're going to have a hyperinflationary problem and that might make it impractical. Um, but I think that was probably, you know, not very well thought through kind of initial reaction in a lot of ways, because, um, you know, if you, if you think about second order effects, people are not going to hyperinflate it because it's going to become uneconomical. And so the, you know, just profit motivations will, would actually stop that, I think, if, if you solve the rest of the system. Interesting. Uh, we're right at an hour. You guys want a five minute break or do you want to keep going? Um, you keep going. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I've got a couple, uh, questions. Okay, go ahead. I think. Can... Okay. So speaking of things that readily occur to people, once you point them out that are simple, but hard to discover. So if we back up a little bit, what we are fundamentally talking about is how to harness, how to impose a cost on belligerent activity in the form of systemic abuse or exploitation of software. So Mr. Back started thinking, okay, well, how can I use this to solve denial of service attacks or email spam, which is what email spam is. Okay, that is a, that is abuse and exploitation of a rules-based order we know as software. You mentioned they could use it for false flags. You mentioned they could use it for click fraud. You mentioned they could use it for, or I guess I 
I thought you could also use it for like Cybel attacks. You can use it for, um, you can use this prohibitive cost function to, to defend software against all forms of systemic abuse and exploitation. And so it didn't take long for people to realize, oh my gosh, this could also solve the main thing, the, the main systemic exploit of internet cash as well, because internet cash has all sorts of, of issues, centralization being one, right? You have to trust your intermediary not to exploit the system for their own benefit. And of course they're going to, if you create this cash thing that makes them rich and keeps them rich if they continue to exploit it. So fundamentally what we're talking about here is a mechanism through which you can defend software from systemic abuse using brute force physical power, real world brute force physical power in the form of electric power. So, so when we say work, it's kind of a misnomer because as a, you know, the physicist in me says, well, work comes from when you apply a force to, a, to displace a mass. But we're not talking about work, we're talking about charges across resistors. So, so there is no mass involved in, in, in the software. Uh, these are abstract concepts that are floating around. And, but you can still use brute force physical power. You just you use it without mass. And how do you do that? Well, charge across resistor, electricity. So if you, if you exert energy over time, that's still power. So just like you can you know, apply a force to a mass to, to displace it, you can also put a charge across a resistor to, right? You've, you've, you have created joules and then that partition per unit time is, is power. So in my opinion, the, I know this is like a nerdy thing to say, but the more physically accurate way to describe what we're talking about is, is, is power, energy over time gener uh, generated electrically, not kinetically. But at the end of the day, it's still brute force physical power to impose a prohibitive cost on systemic abuse and exploitation of rules, whether it be email, whether it be false clicks, whether it be people um, taking advantage of a, a, a money protocol in, on the internet. And so obviously it jumped real quick to money. And then people focused on that because money's money, right? Like if you figure this out, you can become wealthy. But we can't lose sight of the fact that if you have successfully created a way to basically show a brute force physical power cost function that where that proof of power can be transferred, then money is not the only thing that it can be used to defend. Now it can be used to defend denial of service attacks. It can be used to defend against fake people on Twitter, you know, as the, as the orange check idea by uh, Mr. Saylor illustrates. And so that's what something that we just have to back up and realize is like, just because we use this thing to defend against systemic abuse of its own transferability protocol doesn't mean it can't also be used to defend against systemic abuse of all software in cyberspace. That's the bigger picture, like holy crap moment. So I wanted to make that point. Uh, any yeah. comments on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, there were subsequent things people used it for. So you mentioned Sybil there um, and uh, again, from privacy services, so there were attempts to um, make a sort of pseudonymous email system where you would register and get uh, an email address that you could receive email at. And, you know, then there's the kind of namespace. So ultimately it came down to a namespace like DNS or something, right? That 
if, if there's no cost to reserving a name, somebody's going to name squat. They're going to go in there and they're going to take all English words and it's going to be a lot less fun for anybody else, right? Um, and so one of the people doing this had the idea to require a pretty big stamp, you know, not so a minute or two, but like a few hours worth of stamp per registered email or per domain name that you would, you would get. And <clears throat> I mean, that's, that's a little bit interesting because you see that some scarce things in, in the internet protocols end up having value, like IPv4 IP addresses, they're limited. And so, you know, they have a resale value there's an advantage to being on it. I mean, IPv6 makes that less critical, but, um, and the same for domain names, you know, I mean, domain names transfer for a lot of money. Of course, they're not, you know, standardized. There's sort of some human desirability, but nevertheless, the idea that you would um, be able to throttle the interest to name squat is interesting. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah. Well, I was going to say, it seems like the bigger picture challenge here is, okay, let's, let's say we can create a zero trust and egalitarian brute force physical power function. Let's assume we can um, somehow convert that into some abstract digital object, some stamp in your, not really stamp in this case. Now a coin would be better because you can transfer it. But how do you, you know, in the, in your example with like uh, Bcash and uh, other systems, Okay, well, how do you create, how do you manage the control structure of that transferability itself so that that control structure is also not systemically abusable and exploitable? Printing money is an issue, centralization is an, another issue. So what, what Bitcoin succeeded at is, because it seems like everyone knew that there, this was like something that could be done and would be valuable. The, the, the riddle is how do you instantiate a zero trust and egalitarian system, uh, something that's, that is invulnerable to systemic abuse or exploitation or su sufficiently able to protect against it that establishes the control structure over that, that transferable work. And that's really the beauty of Bitcoin is it takes your idea of some type of proof of power stamp that can be transferable but then it imposes a uh, systemically non-exploitable, non-abusable, non-trapdoor control structure over that stamp uh, in order to ensure that no one gets some fair advantage. And, and, and then that's the, that's the beauty because just like you can use this to defend, you know, to prevent against denial of service attacks, or you can use it to defend against all these exploitations, what the Bitcoin protocol does is it uses its own proof of power to defend its own protocol against systemic abuse and exploitation. So, so the process through which you hash imposes a brute force physical, uh, physical unbounded prohibitive cost on exploitation through um, exploiting the longest chain is valid chain consensus protocol through exploiting the um, you know, the hard cap. So yeah. that's the beauty is it's a self-enforcing enforcement protocol. Right. Yeah. I mean, Robert, you've mentioned about, you know, what, what was the new invention? And, and I said the difficulty adjustment, but, you know, there are multiple clever things going on in Bitcoin that people didn't figure out before. 
And what Jason just mentioned is another one of them, which is that, um, you know, because if you think about it in the abstract, yeah, you want to you wanna have some cost to creating coins and that cost should, you know, react to the market, emulate gold mining or something like that. And Bitcoin does that, but that doesn't necessarily, like if, if you figured that out, it's not immediately obvious that you could use that work to manage the finality of the transaction processing. And so what Satoshi did, what Bitcoin does is it, is it combines those things. So they, they serve like multiple purposes, right? So you're, you know, you're mining for new coins, you're getting the transaction fees, but you're also making blocks of transactions final and in a decentralized system, which is difficult to do. I mean, that, that's the so-called Byzantine generals problem where, um, you know, you've, you've got some kind of battle scenario where there's poor communications and, you, and you've got to have, you know, people coordinate to achieve an outcome and maybe they don't even fully trust each other or, you know, there's some saboteurs in the mix and you've got to, you've got to converge on, a, on an outcome that is clear to everyone. So, I mean, there was, there was pro that problem definition was proposed by Leslie Lamport like many years ago now. And then he went on to propose as, as a way to describe a somewhat chaotic like internet protocol that had to like, you know, reach an outcome, even though there were people on the network that want to be trusted. And um, now of course that protocol assumes that you have an enumerated set of participants. So even if they don't have identity that there's, you know, there's a thousand participants and people can't, you know, so it's not, it's not actually defended against a civil attack. Uh, in the sense that, you know, if one person pretend to be 999 people, your protocol is insecure because that one person is going to over, you know, overwhelm. Um, so in a sense, Bitcoin, you know, so that there are Byzantine general problem solutions and they don't involve work mostly. Um, and so, you know, if you, if you think about how Bitcoin is broken down, the, you know, the work and reaching agreement on sets of transactions that should be considered final, you know, the natural starting point would be one of these Byzantine agreement protocols, which doesn't involve any work. But, you know, given that Bitcoin is permissionless and decentralized, there's no trusted central entity to hand out identities to participate in the protocol. And these protocols require identities. So, uh, I mean, of course, nobody, we don't we don't know how Satoshi arrived at that solution, but you know one hypothetical because there were people that had suggested, you know, expending big stamps to achieve an identity is you, is you you know there's a Bitcoin variant you could think about where you know when you want to start mining your first hour of mining is to get an identity and then use that identity to participate in a normal Byzantine agreement protocol. And then you get, you know, coins in relation to the work, but the blocks are kind of finalized by those guys or something. Um, so one sort of reconstructed theory about how that kind of more elegant Bitcoin solution could have been arrived at is that maybe, you know, he started there and then realized that, well, you don't need an identity. You can have like a fresh anonymous identity each time, because if an identity costs, you know, an hour's work, well, why not be have it a continuous function? Like you get as many kind of block finalization participatory rights as you do work. 
And then we don't care, you know, like Bitcoin doesn't care if you have, you know, a thousand ASICs and, and they act as a thousand independent people because it's, it's fair, right? So you get, you know, one chance per ASIC or per computer. So it doesn't matter. Anyway, however, however it arrived, it's, it's a pretty neat thing in itself that, <clears throat> you know, was pretty much absent from the earlier protocol ideas. So I think that's one of the clever innovations. So to try and, uh, <clears throat> I guess we talked about this a little bit offline, Jason, but I'll try to unpack some of this. You made the point that rules are inherently inegalitarian in the sense that, and we're talking about man-made rules specifically here, that there are rulers, right? People that are enforcing the rules, and then there are, are the ruled, people obeying the rules. And you made the point that that requires trust on both sides. You have to require trust in the rulers not to be corrupt or not to apply the rules unjustly or bend them or twist them to their own self-interest. And you also have to have trust in the ruled that they'll be obedient, play by the rules, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems like the only way to get past that inegalitarian nature of man-made rules is to root the rules of the system in something beyond the control of mankind, perhaps. And that's why I think proof of work is kind of that gateway in a way it just forces you you have to prove the expenditure of energy to earn the commensurate reward whatever it may be um is that roughly correct because if so that's where i mean this is why i think bitcoin is such an apolitical thing in this in a i know politics is kind of a muddied word but in the sense that we have rules now that we don't need to fight over you don't need to fight over the rules of the Bitcoin protocol, they sort of have become ossified over time where, you know, it's, there's no point in trying to have a political dispute about 21 million, for instance, like you can do it, you can go out and spend all your money, whatever, but it doesn't seem like it's a viable attack vector on Bitcoin at this point, if that makes sense. So I'd love to hear how that fits. If, if you think about it that way, Adam, and I'd also love to hear how that fits into your overall thesis, Jason. Well, I mean, uh, I guess I guess it's effectively another uh, emergent property of Bitcoin, right? So people will say, "Don't trust Verify," but <clears throat> the um, the point is that the you know I, I guess unusually about the Bitcoin protocol, you know, it's not client server, so there's no kind of trusted server that can create a challenge and solve it at lower cost. But beyond that, it's a, it's a very verified protocol. So usually with sort of um, access control protocols, there's, there's a decision like policy decision server or something, right? And your chance, you know, your task to get onto this VPN is to answer the challenge response and then this gateway computer will let you in. And so, you know, if you can if you can hack the gateway computer, you can get in without the challenge response, right? And computers are really hard to to secure. And so, one thing that is somewhat unique about Bitcoin is that you're not really asking any gateway computer; you're asking the whole network of everybody, right? So, you can't hack the whole network because it's like too much; it's everybody. So, the fact that you know there are hundreds of thousands of nodes verifying this protocol makes it arguably the most secure kind of challenge response or proof-based protocol ever developed, right? Because 
anything else with a authentication or something, you know, you've got two ways to answer it. One is, you know, you have the private key and you prove that you're authorized to get up the system or you hack the policy point and you get in anyway, right? And those policy points, you know, I mean, the attack could be physical or electronic, right? You could find a, an OS defect or you could bribe the system administrator or you could burglarize their data center or their office or you could, you know, sneak a rootkit into there. I mean, there's so many vectors that in practice, it's really an arms race of, you know, attacker and somebody who's clever and motivated the so-called advanced persistent threat can almost get through anything, right? It's like really hard to keep them out. And you get, you get this with like state hacking, right? They've got enormous amount of resources and, you know, they don't, they don't have boundaries, right? Like a lot of hacking is probably, you know, teenagers on the internet and they're not going to break into somebody's office because they don't want to get into trouble, but a state actor will do any of the above, right? So um, that means that Bitcoin can like potentially solve some of these problems that nothing else has been able to solve um, because you're not proving it to a server, you're proving it to everybody, the whole world. And people can go look historically in time as well, right? So, you know, no doubt you can hack and fool some individual servers, but that won't convince anybody else, right? So, you know, if somebody you know, gets physical access to your computer and inserts some Trojan software that, you know, makes it look like you've received Bitcoin when you haven't, you might give them something of value because you think you've been paid, but, you know, the coins you've got are not real and nobody else will accept them and you'll find out pretty quickly. So that's, you know, that's the kind of power of this kind of pervasive verification thing. So in some ways that, I mean, it's not talked about that much, but that's like pretty interesting and unique thing about Bitcoin. And of course, once you've got, you know, uh, bearer electronic cash is what Bitcoin is, you have an incentive to secure it because if you leave the private keys for spending coins on a computer, now that computer could be attacked, right? And so it finally gives a, a proper incentive or bounty for people to care about, like, you know, for people developing software and hardware systems to really care about, you know, computer security you know, internet connected computer security in a way that yeah, they claimed to before, but they did obviously they didn't because you know the arms race was just generally being lost slowly or something. So now that people have a reason to care, um, I think actually, you know, host security is improving, like at least for devices designed for this, like hardware wallets of, you know, so you get more air gap control systems and things entering more widespread use. So that's interesting as well. Now I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. 
So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible. And then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. Like we said, all rules-based systems only work insofar as people can be trusted to follow the rules, to not exploit the rules. So if you instantiate rules, whether it be through laws or through software, recall that software is just a set of instructions that tells a discrete state machine what state to be in. It's just a set of rules. Then by definition of there being rules, they're inegalitarian because they require a ruler, a client or a server and a ruling and a ruled class, the client or the king and, and his subjects. So they're inegalitarian. Rules are inherently inegalitarian. They're also inherently trust-based. They only work, as we said, insofar as people can, can follow the rules. So combine those two together and you create something efficient that can produce abundance. But the more successful that rules-based system will become, the higher the return on investment of exploiting or abusing those rules, of breaking the trust, of, of using your uh, ruling class intermediation privileges to do something to your own benefit and to um, the detriment to other people. So any rules-based system, regardless of how it's instantiated, whether it be through law or through software, is systemically insecure. Th does that make sense, Robert? Yeah, the, so the more it grows, you're saying the greater the incentive to exploit the rules, as you said. So it's that's it's almost like um, taxing the structural integrity of the system. The more energy or the or the wealth that's inside of a financial system, the greater the incentive to corruption or abdication from the rules. Yes, but the problem when you when you say it at like taxation, that implies like money, which implies. Sorry, I didn't mean taxation in that sense. I just meant taxing the system. You could say straining the system. Yeah, it just imposing it, it, a cost. Yeah, it breaks the structural integrity over time when you have inegalitarian and trust-based rules. And when you are in a rules-based system and you are experiencing systemic abuse or exploitation from within that system, you cannot escape, you cannot escape systemic abuse and exploitation through the abusive rules and exploitative rules. Like you can't continue to follow the rules from within the system and hope to escape from right. the oppression that you're experiencing. So you're trapped. So you must find some exogenous thing, some way to impose an exogenous cost 
on that abuse and exploitation. And that's what brute force power really represents. It is a method to impose an exogenous and external to the system that's completely blind to its ruling class and its, and its ruled class that's completely zero trust, that's completely egalitarian, that is, that's completely fungible, that's all the things that you want it to be. You use that to impose a prohibitive cost on the people who are abusing you or breaking the rules or blah, 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 blah. And so that's what the concept of enforcement represents. Enforce, brute force physical power, right? You, if they're breaking the rules, you impose a prohibitive cost on them. You tax them through uh, that cost. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, I mean, maybe one of my takeaways from this is the, the old adage, don't hate the player, hate the game, right? It's you, you end up these exogenous costs that you described the way I'm visualizing this is when that man-made game is pushed to its limits, right? In terms of there's such a high incentive to bend the rules to your individual interests or become corrupt, as we might say, in a monetary sense, that that starts to happen, that actually diminishes the structural integrity of that entire system. So you're forced to go play another game effectively. And that when you play that all the way out, you end up playing the game of nature itself, which is, hey, energy cannot be created nor destroyed. There's, there's gravity, you know, these other things that we, at least here on earth, can't do much about. And so you end up playing a larger game, I guess, right? The rules of this game that you've made up that are arbitrary don't have the integrity to be sustainable over time. So you need to root it in something deeper. And it seems to me like that's what Bitcoin is the ultimate implementation of is we've actually created this game rooted in thermodynamics, which are like natural made laws or rules that are actually immutable versus all the mutable political laws we've created up yeah. until this point. Well, I mean, I think, you know, uh, people who first learn about Bitcoin end up asking, you know, posing a number of questions. And, you know, some of the questions, I mean, and they're often good questions, right, which we ourselves asked at some point. Um, and some of the questions are, of course, more intuitive answers for people who know a bit about programming and computer science and stuff like that, right? So one of them is, well, it's just a software system. Why can't we change it? And they'll use this to say, well, what's special about 21 million coins? It's software, it could be changed. And of course, the, the reason that can't be changed is, is multiple, but I think a central part of it is that um, everybody is verifying. So you need everybody's permission and it's a shelling point that money to be dependable. And so nobody's gonna give you permission to do that. Like, and so most systems, even political systems, right? Like uh, ultimately, um, I mean, in a kind of indirect way, uh, fiat currencies, US dollar, euros, British pounds, et cetera, are operate as part of democracies often where there's a vote. And if you don't like what the current party is doing with the money, maybe you could vote them out eventually. It's kind of indirect, but ultimately that's something like that going on, right? And um, but democracy itself is a kind of you know majority rule type of thing, right? And, and because you've got multi-party, even the winner may not be even a simple majority, right? If there's like three or four parties or something. So in any case, you have this kind of system, and in that system, you know, at least the majority can win, right? 
they can take other people's money. Ultimately, they can define policies, you know, that they and their friends and people with their financial interests can take money from other people, usually via taxation or something, but ultimately they could just take it, right? I mean, they could, you know, go invade the neighboring country or the region and take their stuff. And, and historically, that's the kind of thing that's happened. So um, now I think Bitcoin has, you know, even though it's not described in the paper and so on, it has this interesting emergent property that it turns out to be quite resistant to even majority wish to change. And, you know, I think you can see this in the block size wars from like 2015 era, where superficially, at least by stated intent, some fairly convincing majority of economic interests on the network wanted to change the protocol. And, you know, that was you know, a big portion of the miners, like 85% of the miners or something, a large number of companies, some individuals and not some other individuals. And yet the system didn't change. Or, you know, the people that wanted to change it just unilaterally changed it and then they lost economically. And so that kind of um, stability against majority enforced change is very interesting for money because you know it's it's in the digital domain. So unlike with physical gold, which is which is another sort of common newcomer complaint, which is yeah, physically physical gold is good money, but can Bitcoin be because it's virtual and you know you could change the definition, you could add more coins, or somebody could print some more for themselves. And the answer is, well, actually, no, they can't because, you know, if they do that, they will they'll get laughed at, they'll get ignored, nobody will buy their coins. The miners will lose money if they mine their coins. And so it's actually remarkably robust and has a lot of advantage, advantages compared to physical gold. So that that property of Bitcoin is like, you know, it's uh, not written in a specific place, right? It's kind of economic game theory come, which I think is unintuitive initially, but much more robust than intuitions sort of suggested. I think a lot of yeah, people and you're, are you're, worried about the forks. You're pointing here to something, I agree with you completely, that it's really hard to articulate in a way because it essentially means that human beings are a core operating component of Bitcoin. It's like not only is everyone verifying as you're describing, but the other, I guess, aspect of reality we're trusting is that everyone is individually self-interested. So in your example of democracy, you know, you get this majority selected rules governing the system, which implies that there's some minority being imposed upon. But in Bitcoin, we have basically individual nodes selecting which rule sets they want to run. And that's all choice, right? There's no imposition at all. You can go and run whatever version of Bitcoin you want. Um, and so you get this, I, I guess, a naturally emergent shelling point is the best descriptor for it, but that's pretty esoteric for a lot of people. Um, but it leads to this uh, presumably unbreakable 21 million motif. Um, that's, that's really interesting, almost religious <laughs> in nature. Yeah, I mean, you could see it in... Kind of resource wars, right? So you know, jump a bit into Jason's uh, area of expertise, and then he can like uh, elaborate. But but historic, you know, there've been a lot of resource wars historically, 
And so, you know, some kinds of military adventurism have involved uh, trying to try to track down caches of physical gold that have been mined and seize them, right? And you know, if a particular country had a lot of gold and mined it and culturally valued it, then you know, Spain can go and invade them and take it, for example, right? Historically, and with Bitcoin, I think that's a lot harder because it's um, you know, that's that's a bit like changing the rules or something, right? So, you know, of course, you can try to go grab private keys, but that's that's harder to achieve, and you can't you can't change the rules the same way that you can in a in a physical domain. So, yeah, I think there's some unique advantages, which is in the physical world, you can sort of take resources one by one, right? So an empire that built up by invading and forming alliances with more and more countries like the British empire in its day, you know, invaded countries one by one. They didn't invade them all at once. Where I think with Bitcoin, if you want to overwhelm the network, you have to, it's not, you know, you versus one guy is you versus everybody. And, you know, even then you're probably going to lose, you know, if, it, if it's literally you versus everybody. So it seems to be a more robust and stable kind of ownership uh, tracking mechanism than what came before. Can I talk a little bit about resource wars? Please do. The, what's the first resource war resource world war number one was what we talked about on on one of my podcasts with robert was four billion years ago so to live is to exert brute force physical power to claim resources uh and to defend your access to resources so the first life was nothing but a bubble that was able to subsume particles and defend those particles against the chaos and entropy and the um, harmful external forces of, of the environment it was in. And then just life figured out how to do that at higher and higher, higher scales. It's able to capture more resources, uh, to build stronger defenses for that, um, and, and to go around and eat other resources and, and scale and scale. So this brute force physical power projection game is demonstrably uh, effective at, at um, capturing resources. And then if you can use those resources effectively, expanding your presence as life on, on this planet. And so to, to, to Robert's point, this is like the law of nature, right? An object is only owned insofar as a living creature is willing to project power to claim that object or to defend their access to that object. So 5 billion years ago, if a rock was sitting in the ocean and there's no one claiming access to it, nothing alive, it wasn't owned. It was only until, you know, animals would fight over territory or fight over a mare or fight over this food that animals began to perceive what ownership is. And, and what we are perceiving is nothing but brute force physical power to defend one's access to the thing. So the concept of owner ownership itself is tied deeply to this concept of power. Uh, objects obviously also are imbued with matter called energy. So, so you know, um, if you create or instantiate some abstract digital object in cyberspace, but it's not, but it's not imbued with energy, and there's no mechanism through which people can project power to claim ownership of the thing, 
then it's neither uh, real, nor is it even owned by, by how nature defines what ownership means, how we can empirically validate that nature uh, defines what ownership is. Obviously, there's also the fact that uh, there's non-fungibilities, right? So if you want to create an object or a resource in digital space, um, if you have to make sure it doesn't appear in two positions at one time. In the real world, this is trivial. I know by observing this pencil that it doesn't exist in a second position because I know it's physically impossible for it to exist, at least in so far as we understand physics uh, in you know, another position. But if you instantiate a abstract digital object in cyberspace, it's an abstraction. There's no limit to the amount of positions that it can have. So you also have to figure out how to make this object uh, not appear in two positions at once. Some people call that double spin. Some people call that non-fungibility. Whatever you want to call it, all it really means is how do you instantiate something that we perceive as an object in cyberspace that can exist in two, two positions at once. And then there's the last piece and the, the piece that's, you know, the military guy understands, but a lot of people don't, which is, okay, we can create an object we can instantiate what we abstract as an object in cyberspace. We can imbue it with it matter like energy. We can make sure it's non-fungible so it can appear in two positions at one time. And we can, and, and, and by the way, it, it, uh, it follows the, um, um, it's slave to the law of conservation of energy because it requires energy to change that position. So we're like making this digital object behave a lot like real world objects. What people forget is that ownership piece, that object is only owned insofar as people can claim, um, insofar as animals can and project power to, to own the thing. And the reason why animals do that is because that is secure. That is not vulnerable to abusive rules, to exploitation. That is fair, ruthlessly fair. It's so fair that it's perceived as ruthless. You go look at a tablespoon of single-celled organisms and it's a bloodbath. I just watched Prehistoric Planet and like every episode is a, is a dinosaur eating another baby dinosaur. It's, this is nature, this is brutal. This is how it works. Okay, this is how humans came to, the, to be. And then in our infinite, uh, what would you call it, ego, right? Uh, you know, we thought that we could change the rules of ownership of property, that we could, it would be far less wasteful and, and far more efficient to instantiate rules to govern the state of ownership and chain of custody of, of objects we call, call resources. And every time any society believes that rules and rules alone are sufficient at, at defending people's access to their property, they're proven wrong, okay? Every time, 6,000 years, we can see this. And so what's the solution to the systemic insecurity of rules-based ownership protocols? Brute force physical power, the same thing that nature's always been using. So then we instantiate, we reinstantiate this brute force physical power protocol to govern zero trust and egalitarian and non-systemically abusable access to objects called resources. And that's what we perceive and that's what we ostensibly call war. War is the same thing nature does, projecting brute force physical power to, to claim ownership and defend access to the things that we want to, to claim that we own. And, and so, yeah, I'll stop there because it sounds like Robert wants to say something. Yeah, no, I, I just want <clears throat> to echo some of it back. Um, and we did talk about this last time, but 
I tried to make the point that, yeah, so that 4 billion year old original world war you described between protoplasms or whatever it is, that's essentially the same dynamic we're doing with the state, right? It's creating a bubble within which it defines property rights, it defines the rule of law, and it protects from exogenous invaders. And I, and so it's, it's interesting to me that this all grounds out in territoriality of animals, which I think humans just express that through property, just the relationship between an individual and their stuff ultimately. And it's as if Bitcoin might be this, it's a monetary property that's, I want, I'm gonna use the word independent of the state, but I actually don't think it's completely independent because the things, the physical property that Bitcoin depends upon does have some grounding out in the property rights enabled by the state. Um, you know, we had gold clearly before Bitcoin, that was another form of property. If you held physical gold or any bearer asset, but gold was obviously the most important, you had an asset, a property right in an asset just through virtue of possession of it, but that the physicality of that gold was a real problem. As we've touched on a lot today, it invites violence. It has technological limitations. You can't move it across space very easily, et cetera. But it's interesting to me here that we, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because we kind of pulled a fake it till you make it thing with the idea of property rights that we just made up this imaginal construction and said, hey, let's, let's pretend as if this is real. And it created real world practical results, right? We, we established capitalism and the division of labor and uh, ultimately getting us to the, the age of globalization and digitization. So it's almost like we used the idea of property rights to bootstrap ourselves out of our own animality. And now we've gotten to the point of Bitcoin where it's taken these things that we were just collectively, collectively agreeing to pretend into existence like property rights and rule of law and all of this. And now it's, it's codified it. It's, it's, you know, anchored it in, in energy or thermodynamics, as we keep saying, in some way that is fundamentally different than just the, the scribbles on the paper that the U.S. Constitution was, for instance. So two, two things. First, actually more than two things, but we'll begin. So you mentioned exogenous threats. Yeah, we have to use brute force physical power to protect ourselves from in exogenous threats. Sure. And we talked about that too. What we didn't talk about as much was brute force physical power is also the only means through which you defend against endogenous threats. That's how you defend against your oppressive king that's taxing you too much, that's exploiting the system to their benefit. So revolutionary wars are fought to reset a state of rules into a more fair state because they became too, they were exploited and abused to the point where they became oppressive. So, right. so anytime like anyone's feeling like they're, you know, you know, trapped or oppressed under their rules, yeah, you, you probably are. And there's one way out of it. There's always only one way out of it. And I'm sorry that uh, it's ugly, but that's why militaries exist. Uh, that and of course the exogenous threats. Okay, so what, what does this matter? Why do I keep talking about war and power and rules? Because switch over to the world of computer science. Okay, what is a computer? A computer is a machine that takes a state based off of a set of instructions. We've had computers for 2000 years, at least probably more, but we know for sure that at least for 2000 years, 
people have been using computers. People have been instructing this discrete state machine what state to be in. And those actions, those uh, instructions were purely kinetic instructions. They, they were purely comprised of forces acting against masses. You have to pull a lever or you turn a dial or flip a switch or press a button. Even after 2000 years, when we hit general purpose computers, so like most of the first computers were only able to take a state to like compute one specific thing. So they're very specific purpose. But, but we get to general purpose computers for, for more than a century, even after inventing general purpose computers, even after creating mechanical general purpose computers, electromechanical general purpose computers, and all electric general purpose computers, every act of instructing that discrete state machine what state to be in was purely kinetic. It involved forces acting against masses. You had to, once again, pull a lever, turn a dial, flip a switch, press a button. And so then something really special happened. Some, some smart people said, wait a minute, what if we figured out a way to convert these kinetic actions into an electric signal? We digitize these kinetic instructions, convert it into an electric signal and store it in what became known as stored program general purpose computers. And, and that was revolutionary for a lot of reasons, but, the, but a big one was it caused this like metacognitive shift in society where for 2000 years, for two millennia, the act of programming was kinetic. And then suddenly there was a metacognitive split in the way that society perceives programming. The activity that continued to remain kinetic, that continued to have forces acting against masses, right? those manufactured items or wares were known as hardware. So all these manufactured items that continue to involve kinetic forces against mass were called hardware. And the things that split into electric signals, into, into charges passing across resistors became known as software. And then from that point, we created a whole bunch of instructions that tell a discrete state machine what to do that began to replace kinetic activity after kinetic activity. It started with programming. Programming was only involving forces and masses, but for 80 years, like these last 80 years have been characterized by people being surprised by what they used to perceive as should only have forces acting against mass or should only be mass turning into a massless thing. The dematerialization caused by software is essentially people figuring out more ways you can convert kinetic activity into into some, something that can be done by soft, the soft portions of a general purpose computer. So why am I talking about that? Well, software never stopped being a set of instructions that tell a discrete state machine what to do. We just continued this metacognitive ladder of starting to perceive it as different things. People got really good at instructing a discrete state machine how to behave like things that we can perceive in the real world. And one of the, 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 the biggest thing, and we have to use these metacognitive tools, these abstractions to kind of understand that behavior. So the, the most common one that we use is we assume or we pretend like uh, software is, is some form of orientation of objects because that's all that we know in the real world. In the real world, everything's uh, oriented as objects. So we start to perceive software as being oriented as objects so that we can understand its complex emergent behavior. And then, you know, 
so we go from machine code, we go from assembly language, we start to perceive this thing called general purpose language, we start to do object oriented program, we start to talk as if software, which never stopped being a discrete state machine that tells a discrete, uh, that, that a set of instructions that tells a discrete state machine what state to take, we started to perceive that as this thing we call object, that thing we called language. But we, we ran into the same problem that we ran in 6,000 years ago because software is only a set of instructions. It is only a rules-based order. And all rules-based orders are vulnerable to systemic abuse and exploitation. When you do that abuse, it's called hacking. And that's the, what we call it. Hacking is just the act of finding a trap door in a set of rules. They always exist. There's always a way to, to uh, exploit or abuse rules. And so... So we run into a problem, which is uh, just to highlight there, you made this point to me previously, you're not technically breaking the rules when you're, this is like the Ethereum yep. uh, DAO disaster, right? It wasn't a breaking of the rules. The software was running the rules as written, but there was a loophole exploited in the way the rules were written that led to the abuse. Yeah. Software doesn't fail. It's just designed bad. Software performs, unless it's in space, like I have to worry about this. Right? Unless it's in space and it got hit by a solar particle and it caused a random bit to flip, then software doesn't fail. And even then, it wasn't the software, it was the computer. Right? So software does exactly as it's designed to act. But you have this problem where it's like, okay, well, how do we prevent a set of rules from exploitation? Right? There's always a way to design a set of rules that can be exploited. Okay. Well, how do we solve it in, in law? Well, we, we enforce, right? We enforce a set of rules through brute force physical power. We impose a real world physically prohibitive cost on the exploitation of, of abuse, exploitation and abuse of rules. So then how do we move that into the cyber domain? How can we harness brute force physical power to impose a real world, uh, um, a real world cost on abuse and exploitation in, in cyberspace? And this is where poof, my, you know, thesis and realization was, which is, holy crap, we're going, we're starting to metacognitively split again. Warfare itself, this act of exerting brute force physical power to defend a set of rules against systemic abuse and exploitation used to be purely kinetic. It used to only be in, involved, can, you know, forces acting against masses. Um, Clausewitz describes war as the blind natural forces of primordial violence. And he argues that nations don't go to war for the sake of displaying their violence, they go to war for the sake of settling policy disputes because they probably feel like they're being systemically abused or exploited in some way. And so they access those blind natural forces, that brute force physical power as the means to solve it, okay? And so war is what, is, what do you say, is merely the continuation of policy by other means. It's settling policy disputes through the blind natural forces of brute force uh, physical power. Okay, so transpose this into the digital domain. We have a bunch of rules. We need to figure out how to way to, to protect them against denial of service attacks, cyber attacks, fake clicks, um, you know, systemic exploitation of our open communication systems, troll farms, every every type of exploitation. Remember, these aren't software breaking, it's, it's software being exploited. We can use brute force physical power to patch that up, just like we use brute force physical power to patch up the systemic flaws of, of our laws. And so what if 
just like we, we metacognitively split the way that we perceive what used to be a con exclusively kinetic action from hardware to software, what if we're starting, what if society has figured this out for, for again, and, and we're starting to figure out that a, a 6,000 year old profession called warfighting that used to be exclusively kinetic is now splitting in two again. And we're going to once again, perceive these things as two distinctly different concepts. The part of warfighting that remains kinetic, that it continues to involve forces acting against masses will be known as hard war. And the, the part of warfighting, right? The part of imposing real world brute force, unbounded physical costs on things that don't involve mass, that are converted into charges passing across resistors, that can be perceived as soft war. And so what Bitcoin does is it does everything, it, it not only behaves like a real world object, meaning we've now instantiated an object in, in space that we can perceive the behavior of as an object, we can call it a coin, we can call it a stamp. It doesn't matter what you call it, it's an object. But that object is, is, is literally digitally converted brute force physical power. So it has a real world physical presence, physical signature. So it's imbued with real world matter. It, it, it requires energy to move it. It can't be in two positions at one time. It can be owned because um, you know, people can claim, people can project power to to claim ownership of it and defend their access to it. But the protocol itself is defended by soft war. It takes its own thing and defends itself through the instantiation for the first time of this concept called soft war that I'm calling soft war. And so that is the, the miracle I believe is, is all of these things combined together is just revolutionary in so many ways. And, and what happened when people figured out software well, the amount of hardware that is needed to program a computer dropped exponentially. So what happens when fi people figure out how to use software to solve the systemic abuse and exploitation issues that they're experiencing? Maybe it's true that the amount of hardware that needs to be used to defend against systemic exploitation abuse ne needs to decrease too. So by virtue of that, the invention of software necessarily could lead to the reduction of the need for hard war to protect our rules. And then the last thing I'll say is Klauswitz said, there's three components of warfare. There's the blind natural forces of, of uh, primordial violence, but there's also a probabilistic game that rewards the most creative, um, like he called them spirits, right? So it's not just about brute force physical power. You also have to use it cleverly. And then he says, the third thing that qualifies war as war is when nations use it to settle policy disputes. And so what is happening right now? Nations have a policy dispute about monetary policy and they're using brute force physical power to solve it. And so maybe Bitcoin is soft war or the implementation, the first operationally um, successful and wide scale adopted use of this concept of soft war. And it just so happens that the first policy 
by which it's being used as that other means to settle policy disputes is monetary policy, but it's not going to be limited to monetary policy. It can be used for all kinds of stuff. And we're just beginning to scratch the surface of how significant that is. And so I'll wrap it up with just one little plug here, which is, I'll, I'll say it until I'm green in the face, Adam Back deserves a Nobel Peace Prize because it was the instantiation of hash cash, or more importantly, this brute force physical power um, um, cost instantiation. That is, what's it, that is what software war uh, relies on. And, and Satoshi obviously deserves ones too, but he's not around. So I think this is huge. I was yeah. Brilliant. Well, go ahead. Adam. Not 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 sure about the Nobel Peace Prize, but I, I heard people seriously suggest that Satoshi could be a contender. And I think that's interesting. Of course, being uh, anonymous makes that kind of double interesting as well in his case. So, but I think it's interesting that the the uh, monetary policy dispute case you raise because. You know, some resources are physical in nature, like oil, gas, etc. Right, and um, but the you know the economics that enable the purchasing and transport of physical commodities depend on money, and you know if they're sovereign resources or private companies that are protected by sovereign resources, and you know the dispute gets to the point where they are changing the rules of the money system yeah that's a whole different ball game i mean i think it's not unreasonable to suppose that's going to have long-term implications and of course bitcoin is very you know very interesting position in relation to that development because you know it comes back to the thing i was saying about you know you, you can have a, a physical war pairwise with neighbors but you can't <clears throat> You know, and you could prevail and grow on that as as empires have done over the past. But you know, you can't overwhelm the Bitcoin network in the same way um, because it you know it's one person versus everybody, and you know everybody has an interest globally in a in a working money. So I think that that sort of brings Bitcoin as a as a better gold as a kind of policy neutral global currency. <clears throat> And, you know, these kind of uh, economic sanctions, you know, without, you know, any particular comment on, you know, the, the acts of any, any state actor, but it is, it is a big move to take to erode the kind of dependability of money globally. Um, so, and, and the other thing is, I wonder if... Uh, Bitcoin is a more efficient solution because if you look at, you know, the chaotic nature, so you had some quote there, Jason, about inventiveness in war. So basically there's, the, and the same goes for, um, you know, uh, fiat money, that there's an incentive up with new money that's being printed or create or fed into the economy for people to get to spend up to the cost of the new money to get their hands on it, right? So there's a big incentive, the so-called Cantillon effect to get close to government contracts, to get political favors, pay lobbyists, and 
you know, in the case of natural resources to engage in like local uh, wars and disputes over property, over, over, over commodities, um, that that's, that's a pretty messy situation where, you know, energy is being expended, like particularly in political lobbying, which inherently makes a less fair political system, right? So it's kind of making um, a system that people don't enjoy living in because it feels like there's favoritism, there's insiders, there's bribery, there's corruption, and the system is like unstable. So it, it's naturally gonna tend to be there because somebody's in a policy decision point where they get to decide where the money goes. And, you know, so that's gonna attract people who have a financial interest in doing that. Or if they started out neutral, they're gonna get, you know, lobbied or bribed or trying to exert influence on them via, you know, other more indirect plausible means like, <clears throat> you know, this sort of so-called revolving door policy where effects where, you know, former policymakers get high paying jobs as advisors and things like that, right? So there are very plausible roundabout ways that people get rewarded for helping lobby groups get their, you know, get the effect that they want from policy. So, you know, so people will say that, well, Bitcoin proof of work, it uses energy, but it's using it in a very tidy way because it incentivizes everybody to engage in a fair game, right? Which is, you want some coins, you do some mining. You want to, you know, you can optimize your costs, but ultimately everybody's playing the same game. Whereas with politics, that's not the case, right? It's, you know, it's an unclean war with negative societal consequences, erosion of kind of moral fiber and trust and, you know, enjoyment uh, of, of people in the country when they see there's like high level corruption just bleeding out everywhere. Um, so I think from that point of view, Bitcoin is a more efficient solution. And I guess the other thing for Jason maybe to comment on is, <clears throat> so, you know, Bitcoin sort of potentially solves the money problem and clearly society needs uh, functioning money. Um, but there are, there are assets which are not monetary in nature, like, you know, raw materials or houses or, you know, material wealth, some of which, which may be transportable. So I think that, you know, one observation is that there's some interrelated things here, which is that the lack of a sound money in, in wide use um, has led to the monetization of, of assets that is less efficient. So, you know, there's a lot of real estate, which is not really bought for its utility, but it's bought as an investment. So literally empty properties that have been bought because they protect against inflation, um, including in some places like whole cities full of vacant apartments, which are basically investments or something like that. I mean, they may or may not work out, but, um, that kind of monetization actually reduces value to, to the end user, to the average person, because it makes houses more expensive. And so people get less enjoyment, less benefit from the, the spend on property. So if the excess monetary premium was pulled out of monetary substitutes into a better money, the world would be economically better off. Like people's you know, if you if you if you define it in terms of you know enjoyment benefit standard of living clearly it would be a much better 
economic situation. And so removing the monetary premium from things might actually reduce the incentive to you know, try to take control of those things militarily or what have you. Um, so anyway, I, I think it's an interesting question as to the extent, you know, knock-on effect of that. Because like some people are using Bitcoin to argue that it will end war. <laughs> and, and, you know, obviously a lot of people don't like wars. Um, and it seems like some of it may not go away because there's still physical commodities and things that people will want to get hold of. But, but it does seem that there are natural uh, benefits to having a sound global money. So um, software doesn't reduce or doesn't eliminate our need for hardware. So software won't eliminate our need for hardware. It could reduce the amount of hardware, hardware we need, just like software reduces the amount of hardware. Right, because like you know, the original all-electric general-purpose computer was a huge. Actually, I think it might be in Boston. I'm I'm gonna try to go check it out. You know what comes to mind here is that little meme of an iPhone next to all the gadgets that it replaces, all the hardware. You know, the calculator, the phone, the et cetera, et cetera, is all now compressed into one tiny piece of hardware. And and what software does software does for the last 80 years, over and over and over and over again, is an ex it exposes an, an intrinsic assumption that we didn't know we were making. And that assumption is all things need to be kinetic, 100% kinetic. All things need to require forces acting against masses. And so time and time again, whether it be your music or whether it be all the things that iPhone replaces, we're just surprising ourselves over and over and over again what professions don't need to be 100% kinetic activity. And there's no reason to, ex to, to expect that war fighting will be any exception to this, that we're somehow magically protected against the disruption of, of software and people figuring out how to convert 100% kinetic ac actions into something that could, some of which can be um, performed by software. And so, War fighting itself is changing, and that is what Bitcoin represents. And and and, but it's not going to replace like war altogether. But but to to, to Mr. Back's point, and you know, obviously, I drew that like viral picture. Um, the beauty of about money is that it can change state instantaneously, uh, or at least it only it rely it requires only our belief. Right, I, we have to value it as money in order for it to qualify as money. And so the form of money has constantly changed because we can switch what we decide money is. We can pick what that is. Just like for 2000 years, we had to do computer programming through forces acting against masses because that's the only option we had. The same is true for money. We had to have uh, you know, mass-based money because we didn't have an alternative until one emerged. The one that emerged was this concept, this abstract concept, right? The, you know, the matrix says there is no spoon. It's true. There is no spoon. There's only a discrete state machine that is instructed to behave like a spoon that we perceive as a spoon because our puny little brains can't fully understand or intuit the complex emergent behavior of, of state machines. That's true for money, right? So if, if we create some abstract digital object called money and run it through computers, which is what fiat does. Sure, um, we can perceive it as money. 
and we can choose that to be money, but, but we could also just change it. And no amount of real world kinetic brute force power can defend the, the United States dollar against people just choosing to value something else as money. That was the fundamental problem that all these miners ran into with the block, uh, the block size wars. Is like, yeah, you can switch, you can create a wholly different new form of money and you can hard fork this thing. But that doesn't mean people are gonna value it. Just because you have all this brute force physical power to defend it doesn't mean, right? So just because the United States has all these nuclear weapons to defend our access to what we perceive as money doesn't mean it, it doesn't mean I had to value it. I don't. That's happening at scale. And, and so then people bounce around. They're, they feel oppressed under the system and they bounce around and they try to monetize other things that is the most secure against systemic abuse and oppression. And so maybe it's, uh, maybe it's housing, okay? Maybe it's something else. But, but what people value is defensive property. And the, one of the best properties that you can have in money is defense against systemic exploitation and abuse. And so if you can instantiate an abstract object in cyberspace, and then you can create a zero trust egalitarian soft war protocol to defend that against systemic abuse and exploitation of its own rules, then holy crap, we should perceive that thing as money because if you do, then it's the most valuable and well-defended thing that there could possibly be, at least in terms of what, we can, what types of property we can monetize. And so how many wars have been fought over time because people's monetary value that they assign to objects has been systemically abused and oppressed by the rules-based system over it? A lot of them have. And so if we take that monetary value out of those systemically abusive and exploitative systems and park it in something and then defend that through soft war, that could be something special, but it won't just be money. El Salvador is starting to do this, right? What is war? War is when people choose to engage in a probabilistic game, you, uh, leveraging the blind natural forces of primordial violence as an alternative means to settle, to settle policy disputes. That's exactly what El Salvador is doing with, against the World Economic Forum and IMF and the United States. That's what other countries are going to figure out soon. Um, but it won't just be that. Anything that exists in cyberspace, any rules-based system, which is all software, now has the means to impose a physically prohibitive real world unbounded probabilistic brute force physical cost on systemic abuse and exploitation of those rules. And so we, when, we, when Michael Saylor says things like, oh, we should have an orange check system, right? You can only tweet if you have some microscopic amount of uh, collateralized Bitcoin. What he's actually saying is we need to impose a brute force physical unbounded cost on this action to secure it against systemic abuse and exploitation like spam, like de denial of service attacks, but everything in cyberspace can now, can now do this. So not only does it qualify as money, right? So not only if you own Bitcoin, you, you have well-defended money, you also are literally powerful. Like you literally have brute force physical power that you are wielding for whatever reason, for whatever purpose you want to. And it's only a matter of time until other people figure this out. And I'm hoping the United States, that's why I'm here, will figure it out first and dump a bunch of money into acquiring as much of this brute force physical power as possible. But it, I just want to like emphasize, we can call it anything. We could call it a spoon. We could call it a cup. 
It's just a thing. It's just a discrete state machine that tells the, uh, sorry, it's just a set of instructions that tells a discrete state machine how to act like an object, which we, we then call money. And then we financially incentivize this group of people to wield brute force physical power to defend that protocol against systemic abuse and exploitation, but it can be anything. But, but what's not abstract is the brute force power that it's digitizing. That is real. Yeah, That has real I, value. I mean, I think the um, sort of uh, policy dispute, as you put it, is a very interesting benefit of Bitcoin that it appears to be basically the least corruptible piece of monetary technology that people have found so far, right? I mean, gold, yeah, that's pretty good, but it has its like physical limitations. And um, of course that also got, you know, some kinds of policy attack, right? Where, where like the Roman empire tried to uh, debase it a bit, right? To um, mix it with lower cost metals and stuff like that. So I think the, the fact that the monetary system is clean and tidy and sort of sets up the incentives for people for it sort of to be stable and stay that way is potentially a big benefit that you know we haven't seen the effect of yet where you know, any any system that tries to be that starts out trying to be fair that is you know policy based it tends to go wrong you know, the incentive is unstable and the incentives mount up until, you know, next thing there's, you know, political parties in some kind of messy um, media and social media strife and that, that persists in many countries and ultimately wars like between countries or even, you know, domestic um, <clears throat> overthrow and stuff like that. So I think actually Bitcoin may ultimately help that because <clears throat> while it's money, money is pretty central to everything we do, right? And we've monetized so many things that could be demonetized. So, and, and like money is a transmission mechanism for, for corruption, which is rooted in the, in, a, in the money supply itself being corrupted. So a incorruptible route for money could, I guess, end up in you know, less, less branches of government being needed and less, you know, a less corruptible or less corrupt um, economy, basically. I, th I think it's worth noting that technically speaking, Bitcoin being a rules-based protocol is exploitable. The question is, why isn't it? Why is it virtually unexploitable? So technically it is exploitable, but it's virtually unexploitable because it would just be so hard to do it. And an easy way to think about this is as a military officer, if I try to impose a set of rules or like, especially for like the Navy, if you're on a warship and, and you're the officer in control of the ship and you start doing things that are perceived as oppressive, your number one threat is mutiny, right? You, you have all these soldiers and they can, if you become oppressive, they will impose a brute force physical cost to, to stop you from being oppressive. Okay, this is a this is um, this physically stops the oppression. I think that's important to point out. You mutiny physically stops the oppression through brute force physical power. Okay, 
So go back to Bitcoin, go back to this software protocol idea. Being a set of rules that is technically exploitable, but if people feel oppressed, right? Or if people, um, you know, easy way to oppress people or exploit the system is 51% attack, for example. Um, what prevents a 51% attack is not rules and is not well-designed software. Everyone knows of this exploit attack vector, right? We know this hack exists. You could 51% attack, you could, you could choose, simply choose to withhold transactions from the block using all your hash power and basically denial service attack people from access to their property. The reason why that doesn't happen is because the honest nodes or the um, either vote not to monetize that thing like in the block size war or the honest miners impose physical brute force unbounded cost on, on the 51% attackers. That's why it's secure. And I think, right, so you can, you know, mutiny effectively um, people who, who become too centralized. Like that's what protects it against centralization is if one person starts to control too much hash rate, we know that is a risk of systemic abuse and exploitation. So we physically stop it using unbounded physical power. This is something that proof of stake sure as hell cannot do. So I just want to point that out. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, sorry, I think proof, proof, proof of stake is uh, basically reinventing the problems that we have today. So it's like a fiat money in effect. So I, I expect that it will you know, see all of the same problems. And indeed, you know, many of those problems have already been experienced by different proof of stake systems. So um, but I guess something that also helps Bitcoin is that it's a, a very narrow set of rules. So, you know, and, and what, what do people want from money? They, they want sort of dependability, fairness, and you know, store of value, long-term predictability. And Bitcoin appears to have that much more than maybe we would intuit first seeing it, right? It's like a lot of it is sort of reinforced by economic game theory. It's more profitable for everybody to do that. It's very hard for individual belligerent parties or even like nation states to do that much about it. And I think also ultimately, because people hypothesize, well, you know, what if uh, there's a military incursion and they take over this mining farm or you know, that kind of thing. And I think, you know, ultimately because it's so decentralized in its verification that uh, people would react, you know, that it's sort of like playing chess, right? You say, well, you know, what if I just, um, you know, change the rule? I just take your queen off the board because hey, I'm bigger or something, right? Well, that's not going to work because nobody else is going to recognize that game. So I think the same applies if somebody, you know, tries to do some kind of physical attack on parts of the infrastructure. I mean, firstly, it's pretty decentralized. But secondly, I think, you know, the participants would defend the network. And some of the things that were, you know, used to defend the network during the block size wars were not just, you know, well, we'll have more hash rate, but also, you know, activist economic things like um, selling and shorting. And, you know, people, people were, were, you know, not just trying to make money, 
in a, in a neutral way, they were interested to, you know, uh, I mean, potentially even lose money because they thought it was worth defending, right? And so I think that extends to, you know, there were communication and sort of, um, you know, lots of different individuals speaking about and trying to influence and try and clarify why they thought things were a bad idea. But I think, you know, ultimately that if the sort of very, I mean, I think, I think the system is unobjectionable because it's very simple and clean and defined and what it does. So as long as everybody, you know, enjoys the benefit of it, you can opt to use it. So there's not really that much point trying to overwhelm it, but if somebody did, I think, you know, participants could temporarily um, react, you know, so ultimately it is a game of chess and there are intelligent actors. And if the system's under attack that they, they see as very societally globally valuable, they would take steps outside the protocol to defend it as a system of money, let's say. So, and people generally assume like, oh no, like the, there's this code, if I can, you know, trick the code or overwhelm this or hack this router, people are going to go, oh no, game over, Bitcoin's over. But no, like, dude, you know, if there's a bug, somebody will fix the bug. If there's a temporary exploit, people will figure out how to, to counteract it because it's a valuable system. And the competing monetary systems are far weaker and get hacked all the time. And yet, you know, society keeps using them, right? So, so I think it's unimaginative to think that, you know, the economic actors with, you know, up to upwards of a trillion dollars of financial incentive won't do something to protect their uh, interests. Yeah, people uh, misunderstand or just don't fully grasp what unbounded cost means. So if someone, for example, tried to 51% attack the network, there is no limit to the amount of power that honest users can put into the system to defend against that 51% attack. If, 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 the, if the, you know, the top 50% of stakers decide to exploit the system by engaging in a 51% 50 attack, there is a very hard limit on the amount of stake that honest users can use to defend the network. It's only 50% of the existing stake. And so all they have to do is cross that bound and voila, you are now physically incapable of stopping the attack. Right. But, but then something else that people forget is that, and, and this is rabbit, this is controversial, but I'm a military person and this is my job. Let's, um, let's assume that the world has adopted a Bitcoin global standard. And let's assume that some jealous entity like China who decided to forsake it and now is being like poor, uh, wants to try to 51% attack it or whoever, that unbounded physical cost that can be applied, right? That unbounded defense is not just electric, right? So the, the friendly way of saying it is good luck hiding that much hash power from a Tomahawk, Tomahawk cruise missile, right? The fact that proof of work, the fact that this hashing algorithm requires real world physical hardware with mass means you can still enforce and protect it against systemic abuse through force against mass. So it's, it's unbounded, uh, it's protected by unbounded physical costs in two 
dimensions, cyberspace and and real world space. So it's very secure. Yeah, I think, um, you know, my point as well is that um, people will get creative, right? So, I mean, it's, it's difficult to articulate a specific problem that the system might have to react to. But, um, you know, if, if there was some bug introduced by an apt attacker, like a state player that spent years, you know, inserting a bug subtly and, you know, obviously for it, for it to have an effect, it's going to be detected. And once it's detected, it can be undone potentially. Now, of course, that's, that's unpopular in Bitcoin because, you know, finality, right? But ultimately, I think if, if the, if what's happened is, is clearly a bug or an attack on the, you know, survivability of the system, it's going to be a shelling point to fix it. And the fix could be, you know, uh, physical, like apply kinetic force to the location that is, uh, you know, perpetuating the attack, or it could be logical. It's like, well, you know, there's, there's a mechanism in Bitcoin to uh, invalidate a given block, right? Which is say, well, we think this is bad. The current software hasn't understood this block. And so we want, we instruct our own software to ignore that block. So now let's imagine there's a sovereign attacker that has, you know, spent billions of dollars amassing power infrastructure and miners, and they start trying to reorganize the network. This is a kind of usual thing where people say, well, it's an uneconomic attack and they don't care about the cost. Well, okay. But then the rest of the users who are feeling disrupted can just get together and invalidate a block once an hour or so. And now, you know, the attacker has wasted billions of dollars and their attack isn't working. Yeah, but it's worth mentioning that that cost is derived from the brute force physical power that's projected, right? So th that huge cost of infrastructure that's needed to over be overcome, that would be so expensive for the attacker if it failed, is as a result of creating your invention, your invention that imposes um, a prohibitive cost. And that prohibitive cost is brute force physical power. Like if there weren't a bunch of people hashing, then building an infrastructure to attack the system would be trivial. Yeah, I mean, it's for surely sure an expensive attack, I think, you know, and probably unrealistic, but people like to engage in, you know, whataboutism and, you know, with the assumption that maybe some sovereigns end up not liking Bitcoin to the point of trying to sabotage it. So I'm just saying, well, you know, it, it probably won't work out the way you think it will work out because other sovereigns will value it or even, you know, individuals without resort to physical attacks on infrastructure can basically void an attack if forced to. And, you know, if somebody takes all your money or everybody's money, well, okay, you're going to do something about it, right? You're going to roll that back. You're going to undo it or override it or invalidate their work. And that will cause them to have expended, you know, irreversible cost and not get the payoff. So I think they're going to stop quickly. And it's a sort of variant of the, of the fork situation, right? People thought that, I mean, it's kind of, uh, in that case, a bit of uh, labor 
theory of value misconception, but you know they thought that if miners would mine this alternate coin, that it would become the new reality. But really, you know, the coin that people value is the one that they are willing to buy, and miners will just mine, you know, ultimately mine the more valuable coin or go bankrupt. And I think that ultimately applies to sovereigns too. And and the other thing is sovereigns are much better at game theory than people people on the average people on the internet. So they won't, you know, there's a fair chance they wouldn't expend those billions building that attack because they could see what would, you know, they could see, foresee this kind of conversation that people would get pragmatic and do something to counteract the attack, which they could do with, you know, a massive asymmetric cost advantage. Like their cost to defend is much cheaper than the cost to attack. So the attack would be, you know, if you could predict an attack would fail and it's expensive, then you're not going to bother doing the attack. It's kind of a defensive version of mutually assured destruction, right? So um, mutually assured destruction, idea being that people won't, won't attack because the results will be bad. But if you can, if you can build an expensive offense and you can see that there's a cheap defense, you're probably not even going to build it. So my thesis working title right now is mutually assured preservation for a similar reason. What I think it's um, an easy, like something useful to think about is what is mutually assured destruction? Mutually assured destruction is guaranteeing that some activity would be too prohibitive to too prohibitive and costly to do through brute force physical power, through unbounded, highly unbounded brute force physical power through the use of nuclear weapons. So, we're, so we essentially say that like, there's no limit to the amount of power that I'm willing to project to defend my homeland. If you try to attack me, I will destroy, like we're gonna destroy the whole world. It's mutually assured destruction for both parties. Um, okay, so it's worth noting that in the Bitcoin protocol, the way the incentive structure works is the people who are defending it using brute force physical power are paid fees and are paid and are, and are awarded the block subsidy. So it is still a protocol where the users essentially pay the power projectors to defend their money against uh, or their territory or resources against, um, against systemic abuse, exploitation or attack of some kind. Okay, so those are parallel, those are the same. What makes um, Bitcoin so special is that as you increase that unbounded physical power in the real world, um, it doesn't give you, how do I explain this? It, it, actually, it actually helps your opponent. So like if I own Bitcoin and people are, are, are spending more money to give it more hash rate and, and half hash power and in an attempt to attack it, they're actually making my Bitcoin more powerful, which then I, I can then turn around and use to buy more hash or, or do whatever I want to. So, so the, um, the, what Bitcoin does is it converts unbounded real world power and then digitizes it to have a bounded volume. So the more power that gets injected into the system, it doesn't cause there to be more 
Bitcoin, it causes each Bitcoin to be more powerful. And so if I own the Bitcoin and you're trying to attack me, you're actually making me stronger. And so I'll have some better conceptualizations for this, but the bottom line is, is mutually assured preservation. The more that people engage in, in this, you know, the soft war protocol, the more they increase the amount of unbounded physical power, uh, the more secure the system becomes. And so opponents actually benefit from this uh, competition and it produces more energy and produces more power and produces more defense, therefore more real world value. Um, it's uh, the, the, the exhaust of soft war is cheap power and more abundant infrastructure. Right, so it, which which is itself like highly correlated with, uh, you know, human wealth and prosperity and technological growth and everything. Right, I mean, the access to energy resources led to you know, the industrial revolution, and I my thinking is that that just continues because technology requires power to operate, like electrical or fossil power um and so you know bitcoin being related to that basically has um creates an economic an additional economic incentive to um expand power infrastructure which which then ends up you know making a more wealthy prosperous society um yeah i think what you were saying about the the uh, sort of mutually assured defense it's it's interesting in a bitcoin case because um the attacker doesn't get any benefit unless they succeed in the attack whereas the defender is getting paid to defend the system so so effectively if you're the kind of rogue nation that wants to uh you know overthrow the bitcoin regime chances are you're going to just, you know, impoverish your country doing it and then fail. Um, where I think some physical attacks, you know, like local wars and so on, might have stepping stone benefits, right? They can engage in some kind of local war and steal the new commodities of their neighboring country or their oil reserves or, or what have you, right? Whereas they can't do that with Bitcoin. And so, you know, I think there's an inherent advantage for the defender, like that you get paid and the attacker is effectively, unless they succeed, and I, and I don't see really any routes to succeed because the system is ultimately economically intelligent, reactive beyond the protocol that all they can do is do a denial of service essentially, right? And a denial of service incurs the electrical energy spend without the reward. Um, so, you know, there, there was a, uh, a brief hash rate war attempt between two forks of Bitcoin, actually, where, you know, people were sort of competing to lose money, as it were. And, and of course, that didn't work out very well for either of those. But it was an interesting, you know, experiment in this direction, right, which is, you know, denial of service or uneconomic mining. It's kind of its own reward. You're just going to lose money doing it. Uh, so, so I think the um, the economics and the game theory that make that very stable 
are, are part of the beauty, basically. Yes, so when we say, uh, you know, it only pays off if you succeed, so you just make it too expensive to succeed. That is what mutually assured destruction effectively represents. It's how do you make sure that there's no capacity for Russia or whoever to succeed in a first strike against the United States in this example. And so the way to do that is to impose uh, such huge costs to, to ensure that there's no chance of them succeeding, which is also what Bitcoin does. It's just, obviously it's non-kinetic and there's other dynamics that really empower the defenders over the attackers. Yeah, I mean, I guess the lack of incremental payoff helps though presumably mutual assured destruction has that too, um, which is a deterrent for anybody to, to start such a war. Uh, something else related that you'd commented on at one point, Jason, was um, the trend line of kind of drone warfare and the similarities in a way of uh, Bitcoin, right? So I guess the idea that mutually assured destruction um, makes conventional wars risky to the point that people engage in drone wars or maybe just drone wars are somehow in the economics of war more efficient. In any case, the idea that uh, drone warfare is a kind of competition of machines ultimately, which is a sort of synthetic battle to one side and that Bitcoin is maybe a tidier version of that. Yeah, what are drones but machines running software imposing brute force physical costs on each other? The only difference is they do it kinetically versus electrically. So by that definition, running an ASIC is effectively running a drone to impose brute force physical costs on to defend to defend property. And so if, if you create mutually assured destruction and everyone's strategically stalemated, then you've created a system where we must rely exclusively on rules because we can't use that brute force physical power anymore, at least uh, not at a strategic level. So we are vulnerable to strategic exploitation and abuse at, at a massive global scale. For example, maybe the exploitation of a monetary system owned by uh, someone who is a nuclear power. Um, the problem is like we could change what our base layer, like we could change it to a Chinese monetary system or a Russian monetary system, but we're still going to be systemically abusable and exploitable by a nuclear power. Um, so how do you how do you avoid that? And so at a tactical level, you, you can't at a strategic level. At a tactical level, you can fight proxy wars, and the end state of proxy wars is just drones fighting each other um, in massive clusters while humans just kind of observe, and we're you can watch a lot of videos right now of a lot of very expensive traditional tanks in the, uh, uh, you know, in the Western Russian region being wrecked by cheap drones right now. Um, and, and so that's the end state. But then you, you eventually get to a point where you're stalemated at both the strategic and the tactical level. You can't solve or defend effectively against systemic abuse and exploitation at the at the strategic level, nor the tactical level over any type of monetary policy disputes. And so then it's like, well, crap, well, what do you do? Well, we already know the solution is you find a different way to impose unbounded real world physical costs to protect systems against systemic abuse and exploitation. You just do it without mass, which is what Bitcoin represents. I think we've got to give a lot of credit 
to Mr. Charles Darwin, <laughs> this whole conversation is this idea of um, constant, persistent competition. I mean, it percolates at every layer, right? Biological layer, institutional layer, nation state layer. And this, this idea of the Bitcoin network attack, you know, that there, it, there would be a response at the social layer. That's another aspect of this Darwinism. People aren't just going to sit still, sit idly by while this attack takes place. Um, you know, clearly there are very large stakes of wealth and therefore large incentives to defend the network. And it seems to me like this, this war, this, this persistence of, well, we don't have to call it war, call it just conflict, Darwinian conflict. It exists everywhere, right? We talked about the world war starting 4 billion years ago among protoplasms. Like we're still doing it today. Everyone's competing for more property or more territory all the time and almost all their actions. And if you don't believe me, like, do you prefer your net worth to go up or go down? I mean, obviously, I think everyone has a preference for the positive. So, but, but we've been caught in this trap, I guess, in that we had to make rules for ourselves. So we're not constantly, as you and I described in a previous episode, Jason, killing each other over every sandwich, right? We need some, some nonviolent means of dispute resolution. But to do that, we had to kind of fake it till we make it. We had these mutable rules that are then vulnerable to being politicized and fought over. And the larger and more wealthy that system is, the greater the incentive for that corruption. And one of the things, you know, I talked to Jordan Peterson, one of the things he said I thought was really brilliant is that if you're playing football, but you're fighting over the rules of football, then you're not playing football, you're engaged in politics. And anytime we're doing that in the macroeconomic sense, Right, we're fighting over the rules that govern all, all these human interrelations. We're not advancing the ball economically. It's wasted energy. Right, we're wasting energy fighting over these rules that we could be applying to the division of labor. Right, wealth creation. So it seems like this idea of man-made rules inevitably creates a social or societal schism of some kind um, that politics sort of festers around. But with Bitcoin, perhaps we finally established a rule structure that just does away with all that. It's like there's no point in fighting over these rules because no matter which way you approach this thing, you end up with buy and hold as the optimal strategy. The rules effectively don't change because they're optimized for individual holders. And then the consequences of that, I guess, change in the game state percolate throughout everything. And maybe this is, maybe this goes back to the Nietzsche, like his will to power, where we all, you know, all life has this innate desire to expand itself, which is kind of like what you said about Clausewitz, that we had these blind natural forces of primordial violence was part of warfare, right? We just, we need, we have this animus inside of us. We need to channel it somewhere. And you might think you're some, you know, peace loving tree hugger or whatever, but um, I think most people in the world, especially if you look at something like Bitcoin Twitter. I mean, it's constant warfare. People are constantly at each other. I have no idea what things. you're talking about. I've had nothing but <laughs> good experiences. So, I mean, to your, where I really like, the way I conceptualize your transition from hard war to soft war is that we need some channel for these blind natural forces of primordial violence or these animalistic energies. We have to channelize them somewhere. And Bitcoin just gives us a super productive, peaceful, channel to put them into because kind of the paradox there is i mean we said it's the blind natural forces of primordial violence but the paradox is there's no violence inside the bitcoin network right 
it's, it's digital force, electric force, if you will, but there's not violation occurring, at least within the protocol itself. Yeah. So, so that's so where we get getting... into that, that moral equivalent of war that we've talked about from the American pragmatists. That yes, this is still war and all the, you know, the negative concepts people have attached to that. It is, but it's done in a more peaceful way. It's a very paradoxical kind of thing, like an alternative outlet for our competitive energies that's more productive and less destructive. Well, everybody wins too, right? So there's there's not, I mean, the apart from the person that tries to, to attack the system, that probably won't work out. But essentially, there's a game you can play with very simple rules where all participants benefit. So I think it's that stability that, makes it interesting the other thing is like um people's intuition is that cost is is bad you know so if something has a cost like production cost they think that they can make the system more efficient and think about it biologically there are sort of um fitness markers that some organisms express right so you know like a uh, a peacock has like very colorful feathers that are not very flight worthy uh, but evidently you know nature is extremely efficient and figured out this was a useful thing to do and so i think bitcoin finds itself in a place where yes it it consumes energy but it's it's far more efficient than all alternatives because the people are not good at realizing um like foregone alternatives in economics, right? So if somebody gets interested in Bitcoin and then they start buying Bitcoin, well, where did they get the money from? Well, they got it from working or earning it somehow. And there was an alternative, what they would have done with it before. And Bitcoin tends to encourage people to save because it's gone up in value historically or to take a longer term outlook, give them new hope for the future, let's say. And so they engage in longer term behaviors. And so actually, they probably end up using less natural resources because they stop buying, you know, consumer gadgets that end up in landfills. They get more hesitant to spend money or when they do spend money, they want to spend it on things that are going to last a long time. And so, you know, there, there are foregone alternatives to everything. So, you know, a lot of the media reactions are, you know, they're not, not even good at capturing first order effects, but, um, I think it's actually highly efficient. And then that also comes to the point we discussed where, um, you know, it, with a, a fiat currency, which is a variant of proof of stake, basically, there is the same energy is expended. It's just expended in unproductive and messy and corruption prone ways. But, you know, the, the game theory is there. So the money is going to get spent on lobbying or corruption or, uh, violence, criminality, you name it, right? It's all happening day to day. And everybody who's, you know, got much real politic understanding of how the world works realizes that this is the the current state of the art, which is pretty, pretty ugly and chaotic. So I think if Bitcoin provides a tidy solution to that, it's um, you know, the electrical cost is is actually much cheaper than the alternative. Yeah, so we like rules because they seem like an efficient way to establish state of ownership and chain of custody beyond the waste of projecting power or killing people over every sandwich. So rules are efficient in that way. 
But what's really, really inefficient is slavery or oppression or all the types of horrible abuse, exploitation and rule breaking that occurs, right? It's, yeah, it's inefficient. I always, I said this on the last podcast, it's inefficient to build a standing army that sits around and does nothing, right? But it's also more inefficient to be invaded and to lose everything, right? So, so there's, you know, we have to recognize that there is a place for this wasteful activity of brute force physical power as a mechanism to defend um, rules-based order. But, but circling back to something that Robert said, when, when Clausewitz describes warfare as the blind natural forces of primordial violence, what he's really emphasizing is that blind natural force part. He's saying that violence is primordial. It's been around for all for eternity. Um, all animals do it, but there, there's something about it. It's that blind natural force. It's what we talked about before. Power is indiscriminate. It doesn't care uh, who, where you are in your, in your system. If it doesn't care if you're a king, it doesn't care if you're a servant. Um, it, its court of appeals is, is incapable of, of being um, cheated right? You can't go to a court to sue your king. Obviously, it's not going to work, but you can go to the court of, of power to, to challenge your king. Um, it's, it's all these great things, and I know we sound crazy when we talk about the great, greatness of brute force physical power, but there's a reason why it's been used for four billion years, and that's, there's a reason why all countries that survive today all do it. Um, but it's not the, like, they don't go to war for the sake of violence. If there could be a way to settle policy disputes through the blind natural forces of brute force physical power that is non-lethal, I have a feeling that a lot of nations are gonna wanna choose to use that protocol first. And so that's really what it does. It's not a non-violent protocol, it's a non-lethal protocol. Um, And then the other thing too is peace. What is peace? Peace is that state of high trust that exists between wars. So when people are following rules, when people are not systemically exploiting or abusing rules to oppress their populace, that state is peace. Okay, so peace is really a state of high trust. And so I would say, my argument is that there's nothing peaceful about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is zero trust. Bitcoin is soft war all the time. It's people constantly projecting brute force physical power because they do they refuse to trust um, the, the the intermediaries of the system for good reason yeah that's a great way to put it so you know to resolve policy disputes when you have something like bitcoin that has an indisputable policy there's just no animus around it there's no point you know it's like they're trying to argue over the gravity or sunshine it just doesn't make sense yeah so like the reason why we can't use football to settle policies disputes yeah football is an egalitarian game they're projecting power against each other Mm -hmm. right but it's it's or sorry it's a uh yeah it's an egalitarian game but it's not zero trust Right, right. You have to follow. You have to trust that people are going to follow. Play the by the rules, yeah. Or not exploit the rules, which is why where the politics come and in. Not change the rules, yeah. Right, and so power, brute force, physical power, can't be uh, at least war can't be is zero trust because that that can't exist. An easy way to remember it is 
um, dead men tell no tales. Right. Okay. So, so if you, if you tell a secret to someone, right, you are trusting them not to renege on the deal of, of sharing that secret with anyone else. But if you just kill them, there's no way he can renege on the deal. So what it really means is dead men tell, don't break promises. Dead men don't break the rules. Don't renege on the rules. Don't exploit or abuse the rules. Right. So, um, and, and so that's really what separates like the warfare power competition from, you know, playing ultimate Frisbee to settle a policy disputes, because you would still have to trust people to obey the outcome of the, the competition. And you can't, right? It's, that's a trust-based system. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And I just, you know, I'll leave it at this and then ask you guys um, for some final remarks, but I agree with you. I like this piece is a high state of trust. So in to get a high state of trust, then you would want to make trust really inexpensive or is something like Bitcoin, as you're saying, it almost makes it not needed, right? We have 100% veracity, 0% trust. It's not perfectly that way, but it's pretty damn close. But there's kind of a paradox there. It's like, it's also removing the rewards of breaking trust. And that you used to be able to break trust to reap some financial gain in kind of a fiat system or in any rules, man-made rules-based system. But by removing that financial reward, it actually makes normal trust easier to establish because I don't, people can't break trust and reap some huge financial gain. So there's not this huge incentive to breaking trust on a Bitcoin standard. So it's just paradoxical in a way, like by minimizing the need for trust, we actually cultivate a world that trust is easier to establish. And that's Pete, that's a more peaceful world, right? It, my, my counter to that is maybe it's not the fact that we make trust inexpensive. Maybe it's the fact that we make war soft. Mm. So now war doesn't cause death. War doesn't cause destruction. Usually the reason why um, states achieve a, a point of oppression is because people are avoiding the war. Like the last thing that people want to do is go to war because it's hard because mm -hmm. it has mass and those masses will be squashed, whether it be the human or the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. But if we make, we take the mass out, then war no longer becomes the last thing you do in order to defend yourself. War becomes the first thing you do in order mm -hmm. to defend yourself because it's soft, because it's non-lethal, because it results in more power and abundance for everyone. And right. so what, what soft war does is make, like, and, and this is what happened with uh, computer programming. Computer program, computers had to be reconfigured into just massive, huge, um, huge machines with all kinds of levers and, and mm -hmm. dials just to perform like very basic general purpose stuff um, by, by, by choosing to, to digitize that, then instead of the first thing being the first thing you have to do to build a big complex machine, you don't have to do that at all. You can just jump straight into designing an abstract machine and, and you know build it that way. So so re resend that back into um, soft war versus hard war. Like we don't have to build massive apparatuses 
to engage in wide-scale global power competitions to settle policy disputes. We can go straight to, and first, the soft war protocol, the thing that doesn't hurt anyone. It's still, it's not peaceful, but it is nonviolent. Uh, and, and again, kind of how we defined it earlier, that, like imagine the amount of, it wouldn't be peace, it would be non-lethality, uh, the, the amount, imagine the amount of waste, um, spilt blood that would emerge from that. That's something special. And that's why Adam Beck deserves a Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> it's a great place to put a button on it. I think that, yeah, the transition from macro to micro power struggles is just more peaceful, frankly. Um, Guys, this has been one heck of a conversation. I think this one's going to blow up. Um, could we leave it with Mr. Back and then Mr. Lowry? Just tell us where my audience can find out more about you or your work, should they so desire to. Uh, yeah, on Twitter, uh, Adam3US. And um, I guess I enjoyed the... Uh, the Twitter verbal violence as much as the next guy. So I also have a good time hanging out on there. <laughs> and I'm on Twitter too. I'm on Twitter too, Jason P. Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y. I use it to just bounce ideas around um, as I'm working through this thesis. Mr. Back, thank you so much. Thank you both. Thank you both.